0: The following is a conversation with Demis Hassabis, CEO and co-founder of DeepMind, a company that has published and built some of the most incredible artificial intelligence systems in the history of computing, including AlphaZero that learned all by itself to play the game of Go better than any human in the world and AlphaFold2 that solved protein folding. Both tasks considered nearly impossible for a very long time. Demis is widely considered to be one of the most brilliant and impactful humans in the history of artificial intelligence and science and engineering in general. This was truly an honor and a pleasure for me to finally sit down with him for this conversation. And I'm sure we will talk many times again in the future. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got Mailgun for email campaigns, Insight Tracker for longevity, Onnit for supplements, Indeed for hiring, and Magic Spoon for breakfast. Choose wisely, my friends. And now on to the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff, maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Mailgun by Cinch, an email delivery service that I've used for many, many years to have an API that allows you to programmatically send emails. If you don't know what an API is, the point is it's a way for programs for code to interact with the service. You have an API for both transactional and marketing emails. Those are terms used by people much smarter about this stuff than me, but I think transactional means specific to the person emails, which is what I guess used It's a way to email certain people to notify them about the status of whatever the heck they're doing on the website. And then there's marketing emails, which is when you send an email to a lot of people, like the same email. I guess transactional is super customized to an action that a person took, and marketing is like a push email that you send to a lot of people. And both of those are two categories of how people often use email. And so Mailgun is a service that makes it super easy for you to do that kind of thing. You can go to lexfriedman.com slash mailgun to learn more. This show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, a service I use to track biological data, data that comes from my body. A lot of their plans that you can sign up for include blood tests. Why blood tests? Because a lot of really useful data comes from your blood. And then they use machine learning algorithms to analyze that data. So that includes blood data, DNA data, and even data from your fitness tracker to provide you a clear picture of what's going on inside your body. This is the future. Anything you decide to do in your life should be based on data from your entity, from your being. That means your biological body. Maybe one day that means from your brain as well. There'll be a brain computer interface device like Neuralink that collects data from your brain and is able to make suggestions of what kind of supplements to take, what kind of diet changes to make, you can go to insidetracker.com lex and for a limited time, you get special savings for being a listener of this very podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Onnit, a nutrition supplement and fitness company. They have a thing called Alpha Brain, which is a nootropic, that helps you with the memory, mental speed, and focus. You might know it because of uh, Mr. Joe Rogan, which is probably the first time I heard an it read. It's one of the first podcasts, actually, Joe's, that I listened to religiously. I'm a huge fan of audiobooks and podcasts in general, but there's something about the authenticity that Joe projects that uh, immediately connected with me. and. Over time, his ability to be curious and empathetic, a good listener, but also be able to change his mind, keep an open mind to some crazy ideas. Anyway, I mentioned that because the Joe Rogan experience introduced me to a lot of these kinds of products, like Onnit, that quickly became part of my life. I guess podcast ad reads work. <laughs> anyway, you can uh, get a special discount on Alphabrain if you go to lexfriedman.com slash Onnit. This show is also brought to you by Indeed, a hiring website. I've used them as part of many hiring efforts I've done for the teams I've led in the past. They have Indeed Instant Match that gives you quality candidates whose resumes that Indeed fit your job description immediately. I've said this before, I'll say it again, there's very few things in life as important as the people you surround yourself with. I'm somebody for whom the work I've done brings a lot of meaning and joy to my life. Even when I sold shoes at Sears Shoes in the women's section. That little community that you have as you try to figure out this new skill, those people are so instrumental to your happiness and to your effectiveness, to your growth as a human being. So hiring is really, really, really important. And uh, that's why you should use the best tools for the job indeed is one such tool. They have a special offer for listeners of this podcast, only available for a limited time. Check it out at indeed.com slash lex. This episode is also brought to you by an oldie but a goodie, Magic Spoon, a low-carb, keto-friendly cereal. They were there from the beginning. I really love Magic Spoon. It brings so much joy to my heart. I don't care if this is not your thing. Please get it and make it your thing because it's freaking delicious. It has all the deliciousness of a cereal without any of the negative stuff, like all the sugar. It has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs, 140 calories in each serving. It's, like I said, keto friendly. It's magic, I don't understand how it works. I don't understand how it can be so delicious, but they have a lot of flavors. Uh, I would say peanut butter is up there for me maybe top three, maybe it's my second favorite, but by far, my favorite is Coco. Magic Spoon has a 100% happiness guarantee, so if you don't like it, they'll refund it. Get a discount on your order if you go to magicspoon.com slash Lex and use code Lex. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Demis Hasabas. Let's start with a bit of a personal question. Am I an AI program you wrote to interview people until I get good enough to interview you?
1: Well, I'd be impressed if if you were. I'd be impressed by myself if you were. I don't think we're quite up to that yet, but uh, maybe you're from the future, Lex. If
0: you did, would you tell me? Is Is that a good thing to tell a language model that's tasked with interviewing that it is in fact um,
1: AI. Maybe we're in a kind of meta-Turing test. Uh, probably probably it would be a good idea not to tell you so it doesn't change your behavior, right? This is a kind of- Heisenberg link. uncertainty principle situation. If yeah. I told you, you behave differently. Yeah. Maybe that's what's happening with us, of course.
0: This is a benchmark from the future where they replay 2022 as a year before AIs were good enough yet, and now we want to see, is it gonna <laughs> pass? Exactly. If I was such a program, would you be able to tell, do you think? So to the Turing test question, you've you've talked about the benchmark for solving intelligence. What would be the impressive thing? You've talked about winning a Nobel Prize and AI system winning a Nobel Prize. But I still return to the Turing test as a compelling test. The spirit of the Turing test is mm-hmm. a compelling test.
1: Yeah, the Turing test, of course, it's been unbelievably influential. And Turing's one of my all-time heroes. But... I think if you look back at the 1950 paper's original paper, and read the original, you'll see I don't think he meant it to be a rigorous formal test. I think it was more like a thought experiment, almost a bit of philosophy he was writing, if you look at the style of the paper. And you can see he didn't specify it very rigorously. So, for example, he didn't specify the knowledge that the expert or judge would have. Um, not, you know, how much time would they have to investigate this? So these are important parameters, if you were going to make it, uh, a true sort of formal test, um, and you know, some, by some measures, people claim the Turing test passed several, you know, a decade ago, I remember someone claiming that with a, with a kind of very bog standard, normal, uh, uh, logic model, um, because they pretended it was a, it was a kid. So the, the judges thought that the machine, you know, was, was a, was a child, so um, that would be very different from an expert AI person uh, interrogating a machine and knowing how it was built and so on. So I think um, you know we should probably move away from that as a, as a formal test and move more towards uh, a general test where we test the AI capabilities on a range of tasks and see if it reaches human level or above performance on maybe thousands, perhaps even millions of tasks eventually, and cover the entire sort of cognitive space. So I think... Um, for its time, it was an amazing thought experiment. And also 1950s, obviously, it was barely the dawn of the computer age. So, of course, he only thought about text. And now um, we have a lot more different inputs.
0: So, yeah, maybe the better thing to test is the generalizability, so across multiple tasks. But it, I think it's also possible, as as systems like God will show, that eventually that might map right back to language. So you might be able to demonstrate your ability to generalize across tasks by then communicating your ability to generalize across tasks, which is kind of what we do through conversation anyway, when we jump around. Ultimately, what's in there in that conversation is not just you moving around knowledge, it's you moving around like these entirely different modalities of understanding that ultimately map to your ability to to, uh, operate successfully in all of these domains, which you can think of as tasks.
1: Yeah, I think certainly we as humans use language as our main generalization communication tool. So I think we end up thinking in language and expressing our solutions in language. Um, so it's going to be a very powerful uh, uh, mode in which to uh, explain you know, the system, to explain what it's doing. Um, but I don't think it's the only uh, uh, modality that matters. So I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to express, uh, capabilities, uh, other than just language.
0: Yeah. Visual robotics, body language.
1: Um, yeah. Actions, the interactive aspect of all that. That's all part of it. But what's interesting with gatto is that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of, pushing prediction to the maximum in terms of like, you know, uh, mapping arbitrary sequences to other sequences and sort of just predicting what's going to happen next. So prediction seems to be uh, fundamental to intelligence. And what you're predicting doesn't so much matter. Yeah, it seems like you can generalize that quite well. So obviously language models predict the next word. Um, Gato predicts potentially any uh, action or any token Uh, And it's just the beginning, really. It's our most general agent, one could call it so far. But, um, you know, that itself can be scaled up massively more than we've done so far. And obviously, we're in the the middle of doing that.
0: But the big part of solving AGI is creating benchmarks that help us get closer and closer, sort of uh, creating benchmarks that test the generalizability. And it's just still interesting that this fella, Alan Turing, was one of the first and probably still one of the only people that was trying, maybe philosophically, but was trying to formulate a benchmark that could be followed. It is, even though it's, it's fuzzy, it's still sufficiently rigorous to where you can run that test. And I still think something like the Turing test will in, at the end of the day, be the thing that truly impresses other humans so that you can have a close friend who's an AI system for that friend to be a good friend, they're going to have to be able to uh, play StarCraft and they're gonna have to do all of these tasks, um, get you a beer, so the robotics tasks, uh, play games with you, use language, humor, all of those kinds of things, but that ultimately can boil down to language. It feels like, in, not in terms of the AI community, but in terms of the actual impact of general intelligence
1: on the world, it feels like language will be the place where it truly shines. I think so, because it's such an important kind of input-output for us. I think you're right. I think the Turing test that what the, the kind of the the philosophy behind it, which is the idea of can can a machine mimic the behaviors of uh, a, a human in, in and I would say wider than just language and text, um, then you know, in terms of actions and everything else, creativity, all these things, then um, if it can sort of match or exceed human cognitive capabilities, then I think we have a, you know, a true intelligence. So I thought from that perspective, you're right. I think he did formulate the right uh, kind of uh, setup.
0: I just, I think there'll be a kind of humor in the AI systems of the future, looking back to this conversation <laughs> <laughs> and thinking about the Turing test and uh, also thinking about, by that time they would know which year they were finally able to sort of cross the threshold of human level intelligence and, and think how funny it is that we humans were still confused about this whole problem <laughs> that's been long ago been solved well hello to the ai agents of the future anyway so going back to your to your journey when did you fall in love with programming first
1: well it's pretty uh it's pretty young age actually so um You know, I started off, uh, actually games was my first love, so starting to play chess when I was around four years old. And then um, it was actually with winnings from a chess competition that I managed to buy my first chess computer when I was about eight years old. It was a ZX Spectrum, which was hugely popular in the UK at the time. And uh, it was an amazing machine because I think it trained a whole generation of programmers in the UK because it was so accessible. You know, you literally switched it on and there was the basic prompt and you could just get going and um my parents didn't really know anything about computers so but because it was my money from a chess competition i could i could say i i, I wanted to buy it uh and then you know i just went to bookstores got books on programming and um started typing in you know the the programming code and and then of course um once you start doing that you start adjusting it and then making your own games and that's when i fell in love with computers and realized that they were a very magical device um in a way, I kind of, I don't would have been able to explain this at the time, but I felt that there was sort of almost a magical extension of your mind. I always had this feeling, and I've always loved this about computers, that you can set them off doing something, some task for you. You can go to sleep, come back the next day, and it's solved. Um, you know, that feels magical to me. So, I mean, all machines do that to some extent. They all enhance our natural capabilities. Obviously, cars make us allow us to move faster than we can run. But this was a machine to extend the mind. And, uh, and then, of course, AI is the ultimate expression of what a machine may be able to do or learn. So um, very naturally for me, that thought extended into, into AI quite quickly. Do you remember
0: the, the programming language? It was first in, was Yeah, it special to the machine. Or was no, it, it was just gen- a base. It was just. A, I think
1: it was just basic uh, on the ZX Spectrum. I don't know what specific form it was. And then later on, I got a Commodore Amiga, which um, nice. uh, was a fantastic machine. No, you're just uh, showing off. So yeah, well, lots of my friends had Atari STs, and I, I managed to get Amigas. It was a bit more powerful, and uh, and that was incredible. And used to do um, programming in assembler, and and uh, also amos basic this 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 specific form of basic it was incredible actually so i love all my coding skills
0: and when did you fall in love with ai so when did you first start to gain an understanding that you can not just write programs that do some mathematical operations for you while you sleep but something that's akin to bringing an entity to life sort of a thing that can figure out something more complicated than a, than a simple mathematical operation.
1: Yeah. So there was a few stages for me all all while I was very young. So first of all, as I was trying to improve at playing chess, I was captaining various England junior chess teams. And at the time when I was about, you know, maybe 10, 11 years old, I was going to become a professional chess player. That was my first thought. Um so and, that
0: dream was there to, sure, to sure. try to get to the highest levels yeah, of chess.
1: So I was um you know, I got to when I was about twelve years old, I got to Master Standard and I was second highest rated player in the world to Judith Polgar, who obviously ended up being an amazing chess player and uh a uh, world women's champion and when I was trying to improve at chess where well, you know what you do is you obviously first of all you're trying to improve your own thinking processes so uh, that leads you to thinking about thinking how is your brain coming up with these ideas why is it making mistakes how can you uh, how can you improve that thought process but the second thing is that you it was just the beginning this was like in the in the early 80s mid 80s of chess computers if you remember they were physical balls like the one we have in front of us and you press down the you know the, the squares and I think Kasparov had a brain branded version of it that I, I i got and um you were you know you used to they're not as strong as they are today but they were they were pretty strong and you used to practice against them um uh, to try and improve your openings and other things and so i remember i think i probably got my first one i was around 11 or 12 and i remember thinking um this is amazing you know how, how has someone programmed uh, uh this this chess board to play chess uh and uh, it was a very formative book i bought which was called the chess computer handbook by david levy <laughs> it came out in 1984 or something so i must have got it when i was about 11 12 and it explained fully how these chess programs were made and i remember my first ai program being uh programming my amiga uh, it couldn't it wasn't powerful enough to play chess. I couldn't write a whole chess program, but I I wrote a program for it to play Othello, or mm-hmm. Reversi. It's sometimes called, I think, in the US. And uh, so a slightly simpler game than chess. But I used all of the principles that chess programs had: alpha-beta search, all of that. And that was my first AI program. I remember that very well. I was around twelve years old. So that 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 brought me into AI and then the second part was later on uh when I was around 16 17 and I was writing games professionally designing games uh writing a game called Theme Park which um had ai as a core gameplay component as part of the simulation um and it sold you know millions of copies around the world and people loved the way that the ai even though it was relatively simple by today's ai standards um was was reacting to the way you as the player played it so it was a, called a sandbox game so it was one of the first types of games like that along with SimCity, and it meant that every game you played was unique
0: is there something you could say just on a small tangent about really impressive ai from a game design human enjoyment perspective really impressive AI that you've seen in games and maybe what does it take to create an AI system and how hard of a problem is that? So a million questions yeah.
1: just as a brief tangent. Well, look, I think um, games uh, games have been significant in my life for three reasons. So first of all, to to I was playing them and training myself on games when I was a kid. Then uh, I went through a phase of designing games and writing AI for games. So all the games I, I professionally wrote uh, had AI as a core component, and that was mostly in the in the '90s. And um, the reason I was doing that in games industry was at the time the games industry I think was the cutting edge of technology. So whether it was graphics with people like John Carmack and Quake and those kind of things, or or AI. I think uh, actually all the action was going on in games, and and we've seen we're still reaping the benefits of that even with things like GPUs, which uh, you know I find ironic it was obviously invented for graphics, computer graphics, but then turns out to be amazingly useful for AI. It just turns out everything's a matrix multiplication. It appears yes. you know in the in the whole world. Yes. So um, so I think games at the time had the most cutting edge AI. And a lot of the the, the games, uh, uh, we, we you know, I was involved in writing. So there was a game called Black and White, which was one game I was involved with in the early stages of, which I still think is the most um, impressive uh, example of reinforcement learning in a computer game. So in that game, you know, you trained a little pet animal. Uh, and it's a brilliant uh, game. Yeah, and it sort of learned from how you were treating it. So if yeah. you treated it badly... Then it became mean, yeah. and then it would be mean to to your villagers and your and your population, the sort of uh, the little tribe that you were running uh but if you were kind to it, then it would be kind, and people were fascinated by how that worked and and so was I to be honest with the way it kind of developed and um especially the mapping to good and evil, yeah, It made you made you realize
0: made me realize that you can sort of in the way in the choices you make can define uh the where you end up, and that means. All of us are capable of the good, uh, evil. It all matters in uh, the different choices along the trajectory to those places that you make. It's fascinating. I mean, games can do that philosophically to you and it's rare, it seems rare. Yeah,
1: well, games are, I think, a unique medium because um, you as the player, you're not just passively consuming the 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 entertainment right you you're actually actively involved as an as a as an agent, so I think that's what makes it in some ways can be more visceral than other uh, other mediums like you know films and books. So the second so that was you know designing AI in games, and then the third use uh, uh, I've, we've used of AI is in Deep Mind from the beginning, which is using games as a testing ground for proving out AI algorithms and developing AI algorithms. And that was a a sort of um, a core component of our vision at the start of DeepMind was that we would use games very heavily uh, as our main testing ground, certainly to begin with, um, because it's super efficient to use games. uh, And also, you know, it's very easy to have metrics to see how well your systems are improving and what direction your ideas are going in and whether you're making incremental improvements. And because
0: those games are often rooted in something that humans did for a long time beforehand, there's already a strong set of rules. Like it's already a damn good benchmark.
1: Yes. It's really good for so many reasons because you've got you've got you've got clear measures of how good humans can be at yes. these things That's right. and in some cases like go we've been playing it for thousands of years yeah. um and and uh often they have scores or at least win conditions so it's very easy for reward learning systems to get a reward it's very easy to specify what that reward is um and uh, also at the end it's easy to you know to test uh, externally you know uh, at how strong is your system by of course playing against you know, the world's strongest players at those games. So it's it's so good for so many reasons. And it's also very efficient to run potentially millions of simulations in parallel on the cloud. So, um, I think there's a huge reason why we were so successful uh, back in, you know, starting out 2010. How come we were able to progress so quickly? Because we'd utilized games. And, um, you know, at the beginning of DeepMind, we also hired some amazing game engineers uh, who I knew from my previous uh, lives in, in the games industry. And, uh, and that helped to bootstrap us very quickly.
0: And plus, it's somehow super compelling, almost at a philosophical level, of man versus machine. Uh, over over chess board or a go board and especially given that the entire history of ai is defined by people saying it's going to be impossible to make a machine that beats a human being in chess and then once that happened people were certain when i was coming up in ai that go is not a game that could be solved because of the combinatorial complexity it's just too it's 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 you know no matter how much Moore's law you have, compute is just never going to be able to crack the game of Go. And so then there's something compelling about facing, sort of taking on the impossibility of that task from the AI researcher perspective, engineer perspective. And then as a human being, just observing this whole thing, um, your beliefs about what you thought was impossible being broken apart you st- it's, it's uh, humbling to realize we're not as smart as we thought. It's humbling to realize that the things we think are impossible now perhaps will be done in, in, the, in the future. There's something really uh, powerful about a game, AI system being a human being in a game that drives that message uh, home for like millions, billions of people, hmm. especially in the case of Go.
1: Sure. Well, look. I think it's a. I mean, it has been a fascinating journey, and and especially as I I think about it from, I can understand it from both sides, both as the AI, you, you know, creators of the AI, um, but also as a games player originally. Yeah. So you know, it was a it was a really interesting. You know, it was, I mean, it's it was a fantastic, um, but also somewhat bittersweet moment, the AlphaGo match for me. Um, uh, seeing that and 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 being obviously heavily heavily involved in that. Um but you know as you say chess has been uh the I mean Kasparov I think rightly called it the Drosophila of of intelligence right so it's sort of the, I I love that phrase and and yeah. I think he's right because chess has been um hand in hand with AI from the beginning of the the whole field right so I think every AI practitioner starting with Turing and Claude Shannon and all those uh, uh the sort of forefathers of 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 the field um tried their hand at writing a chess program uh, I've got an original audition of Claude Shannon's first chess program. I think it was 1949, uh, the, the the original sort of uh, uh, paper. And um, they all did that. And, and Turing famously wrote a chess program that but all the computers around then were obviously too slow to run it. So he had to run, he had to be the computer, mm-hmm. right? So he literally, I think, spent two or three days running his own program by hand with pencil and paper and playing, playing a friend of his uh, with his chess program. So, of course, Deep Blue was a huge moment. Uh, beating Kasparov. Um, but actually, when that happened, I remember that very, very vividly, of course, because it was you know chess and computers and AI, all the things I loved, and I was at college at the time. But I remember coming away from that, being more impressed by Kasparov's mind than I was by Deep Blue. Because here was Kasparov, with his human mind, not only could he play chess more or less to the same level as, as this brute of a calculation machine, um, but of course Kasparov can do everything else humans can do, ride a yes. bike, talk many languages, do politics, all the rest of the amazing things that Kasparov does. And so with the same brain. yeah, And, and yet Deep Blue, uh, brilliant as it was at chess, it'd been hand-coded for chess and um, actually had distilled... The knowledge of chess grandmasters uh, into a, into a cool program, but it couldn't do anything else. Like it, it couldn't even play a strictly simpler game like tic tac toe. So um, something to me was missing from um, intelligence from that system that, that we would regard as intelligence. And I think it was this idea of generality and and also learning. Yeah. Um, so uh, and really that's obviously what we tried to do with AlphaGo.
0: Yeah, with AlphaGo and AlphaZero, MuZero, and then Gato, all the things that uh, we'll get into some parts of, there's just a fascinating trajectory here, but let's just stick on chess briefly, Uh, on the human side of chess. You've uh, proposed that from a game design perspective, the thing that makes chess compelling as a game uh, is that there's a creative tension between a bishop and the knight. Mm -hmm. Can you explain this? First of all, it's really interesting to think about what makes a game compelling. makes it stick
1: across centuries. Mm Yeah, I was sort of thinking about this and actually a lot of even amazing chess players don't think about it necessarily from a games designer point of view. So it's, it's with my game design hat on that I was thinking about this. Why is chess so compelling? And I think a critical uh, reason is the the dynamicness of, of, of the different kind of chess positions you can have, whether they're closed or open and other things, comes from the bishop and the knight. So if you think about how different the, the 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 capabilities of the bishop and knight are in terms of the way they move and then somehow chess has evolved to balance those two capabilities more or less equally so they're both roughly worth three points each so you
0: think that dynamics is always there and then the rest of the rules are kind of trying to stabilize the game well maybe
1: i mean it's sort of i don't know it's chicken and egg situation probably both came together but the fact that it's got to this beautiful equilibrium where you can have the bishop and knight they're so different in power um but so equal in value across the set of the universe of all positions right? Somehow they've been balanced by humanity over hundreds of years, um, I think gives gives the game the creative tension uh, uh, that you can swap the bishop and knights uh, for a bishop for a knight, and you've, you they're more or less worth the same. But now you aim for a different type of position. If you have the knight, you want a closed position. If you have the bishop, you want an open position. So I think that creates a lot of the creative tension in chess.
0: So some kind of controlled creative tension. From an AI perspective, Do you think AI systems could eventually design games that are optimally compelling to humans?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. You know, sometimes I get asked about uh, AI and creativity. And and, and and the way I answered that is relevant to that question, which is that I think there are different levels of creativity, one could say. So I think... Um, If we define creativity as coming up with something original, right, that's that's useful for a purpose, then, you know, I think the kind of lowest level of creativity is like an interpolation, so an averaging of all the examples you see. So maybe a very basic AI system could say you could have that. So you show it millions of pictures of cats, and then you say, give me an average looking cat, right, generate me an average looking cat. I would call that interpolation. Then there's extrapolation which something like AlphaGo showed. So AlphaGo played, you know, millions of games of Go against itself. Um, and then it came up with brilliant new ideas like Move 37 in game two, brilliant motif strategies in Go that, that no humans had ever thought of, even though we've played it for thousands of years and professionally for hundreds of years. So that, that, I call that extrapolation. But then that's still, there's still a level above that, which is, you know, you could call out-of-the-box thinking or true innovation, which is, could you invent Go? Right. Could mm-hmm. you invent chess and not just come up with a brilliant chess move or a brilliant go move? But can you can you actually invent chess or something as good as chess or go? And I think one day uh, AI could. But the, what's missing is how would you even specify that task to a a, a program right now? And the way I would do it if, if I was telling a human to do it or, or a games designer, to, a human games designer to do it is I would say something like go. I would say um, come up with a game that only takes five minutes to learn. Which go does because it's got simple rules, mm-hmm. but many lifetimes to master, right, or impossible to master in one lifetime because it's so deep and so complex um and then it's aesthetically beautiful uh and also uh, it can be completed in three or four hours of gameplay time, which is you know useful for our us you know in in a, in a human day, and so um you might specify these side sort of high level concepts like that, and then you know with that and then maybe a few other things uh one could imagine that go satisfies. Uh, those, those constraints. Um, but the problem is, is that we, we're not able to specify abstract notions like that, high level abstract notions like that yet to our AI systems. Um, and I think there's still something missing there in terms of um, high level concepts or abstractions that they truly understand and, that are com- you know, combinable and, and compositional. Um, so for the moment, um, I think AI is capable of doing interpolation and extrapolation, yeah. but not true invention.
0: So, coming up with rule sets uh, and optimizing with complicated objectives around those rule sets, we can't currently do. But you could take a specific rule set and then run a kind of self play experiment to see how long, just observe how an AI system from scratch learns. How long is that journey of learning? And maybe if it satisfies some of those other things you mentioned in terms of quickness to learn and so on, and you could see a long journey to master for even an AI system, then you could say that this is a promising game. Um, but it would be nice to do almost like alpha code, so programming yeah. rules. So generating rules that kind of uh, that That automate even that part of the generation of rules,
1: so I have thought about systems actually um that I think would be amazing in 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 for a games designer if you could have a system that um takes your game, plays it tens of millions of times, maybe overnight, and then self balances the rules better, so it get, tweaks the the rules and the maybe the equations and the and the and the parameters so that the game. Uh, is more balanced the units in the game or yes. uh, some of the rules could be tweaked so it's a bit of like a giving it a base set and then allowing uh monte carlo tree search or something like that to sort of explore it right and i think that would be super, super uh, uh, a powerful tool actually for for balancing auto balancing a game which usually takes thousands of hours from hundreds of games human games testers normally to to balance some uh, one you know game like starcraft uh which is you know Blizzard are amazing at balancing their games but it takes them years and years and years so one could imagine at some point when this uh this stuff becomes uh efficient enough to you know you might be able to do that like overnight
0: do you think a game that is optimal designed by an ai system would look very much like a uh, planet earth <laughs>
1: <So> <laughs> maybe Maybe it's only the sort of game I would love to make is, is, and I've tried, you know, in my, in my, in my games career, the games design career, you know, my first big game was designing a theme park, an amusement Mm -hmm. park. Then, uh, with games like Republic, I tried to, you know, have games where we designed whole cities Mm -hmm. and, and allowed you to play in. So, and of course people like Will Wright have written games like Sim Earth, uh, trying to simulate the whole of earth, pretty tricky, but, um, I think. Sim
0: Earth, I haven't actually played that one. So what is it, uh, does it? Is it sort of evolution, or no? yeah,
1: it has evolution, and it sort of um, it tries to it, it sort of treats it as an entire biosphere, but from quite high level.
0: Um, I, so, it'd uh, be nice to be able to
1: sort of zoom in, zoom out, exactly, and zoom in exactly. So, obviously, it couldn't do that. Was in the night? I think he wrote that in the nineties, so it couldn't. It, you know, it wasn't it wasn't able to do that. But that that would be uh, obviously the ultimate sandbox game, of course.
0: On that topic, do you think we're living in a simulation? <laughs>
1: Yes. Well, so, okay. So I'm going to jump around from the absurdly philosophical to the, sure, to the technical. Sure. Very, very happy to. So I think uh, my answer to that question is a little bit complex because uh, there is simulation theory, which obviously Nick Bostrom, I think, famously first proposed. Um and uh, I don't quite believe it in in, in that sense. So, um, in the in the sense that uh, are we in some sort of computer game, or have our descendants somehow recreated uh, uh, Earth in the you know twenty first century, and, and and some for some kind of experimental reason? I think that, um, but I do think that we that, that that we might be that the best way to understand physics and the universe is from a computational perspective. So, understanding it as an information universe, Mm -hmm. and actually, information being the most fundamental unit of. Uh, uh, reality rather than matter or energy. So physicists would say, you know, matter or energy, you know, E equals MC squared. These are the things that are are, are the fundamentals of the universe. I'd actually say information, um, which of course itself can be, can specify energy or matter, right? Matter is actually just, you know, we're, we're just out the way our bodies and or the molecules in our body are arranged is information. So I think information may be the most fundamental way to describe the universe and therefore you could say we're in some sort of simulation because of that um but i don't i do i'm not i'm not really a subscriber to the idea that um you know they, these are sort of throwaway billions of simulations around i think this is actually very critical and possibly unique this simulation This um, particular one yes so but and you, you just
0: mean treating the universe as a computer that's processing and modifying information is is a good way to solve the problems of physics, of chemistry, yeah. of biology, yes. and perhaps of humanity
1: and so on. Yes. I think understanding physics in terms of information theory uh, might be the best way to to really uh, understand what's going on here. Uh,
0: from our understanding of a universal Turing machine, from our understanding of a computer, do you think there's something outside of the capabilities of a computer that is present in our universe? You have a disagreement with Roger Penrose yes. about the nature of consciousness. He, d- he thinks that consciousness is more than just a computation. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think all of it, the whole shebang, is a co- can, be, can be a computation?
1: Yeah, I've had many fascinating debates with uh, uh, Sir Roger Penrose. And obviously, he's, he's famously, and, and I read, you know, Emperors of the New Mind and, and, um, and his books, uh, his classical books, uh, and they, they were pretty influential in the, you know, in the 90s. And um, he believes that there's something more something quantum that is needed to explain consciousness and the brain. Um, I think about what we're doing, actually, at DeepMind and what my career is being. We're almost like Turing's champion. So we are pushing Turing machines or classical computation to the limits. What are the limits of what classical computing can do? Now, um, and at the same time, I've also studied neuroscience to see, and that's why I did my PhD in, was to see also to look at, you know, is there anything quantum in the brain from a neuroscience or biological perspective? And um, and so far, I think most neuroscientists and most mainstream biologists and neuroscientists would say there's no evidence of any quantum uh, systems or effects in the brain. As far as we can see, it's, it can be mostly explained by classical uh, classical theories. So, uh, and then, so there's sort of the 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 search from the biology side, and then at the same time, there's the raising of the water uh, at the bar from what classical Turing machines can do, uh, uh, and 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 you know, including our new AI systems. And uh, as you alluded to earlier, um, you know, I think AI, especially in the last decade plus, has been a continual story now of surprising. Uh, events uh, and surprising successes, knocking over one theory after another of what was thought to be impossible, you know, from go to protein folding and so on. And so I think um, I would be very hesitant to bet against how far the uh, universal Turing machine and classical computation paradigm can go. And, And my betting would be that all of Certainly, what's going on in our brain uh, can probably be mimicked or or approximated on a on a classical machine, um, not you know not requiring something metaphysical or, or quantum. And we'll
0: get there with some of the work with AlphaFold, which I think begins the journey of modeling this beautiful and complex world of biology. Mm. So you think all the magic of the human mind comes from this? Just a few pounds of mush, of of biological. Com- computational mush that's akin to some of the neural networks, not directly, but in spirit
1: that uh, DeepMind has been working with. Well look, I think it's um you say it's a few, you know, of course it's this is the I think the biggest miracle of the universe is that um it is just a few pounds of mush in our skulls. Yeah. And yet it's also our brains are the most complex objects in the in that we know of in the universe. So there's something profoundly beautiful and amazing about our brains and I Think that it's an incredibly, uh, uh incredible f- efficient machine and, and, uh, uh, uh and it's, a, it's, you know, com- phenomenon basically. And I think that building AI, one of the reasons I want to build AI and I've always wanted to is I think by building an intelligent artifact like AI and then comparing it to the human mind, um, that will help us unlock the uniqueness and the true secrets of the mind that we've always wondered about since the dawn of history, like consciousness, dreaming, uh, creativity, uh, uh, emotions. What are all these things? Right, we've 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 wondered about them since since the dawn of humanity, and I think one of the reasons, and you know, I love philosophy and philosophy of mind, is we we found it difficult. Is there haven't been the tools for us to really, other than introspection, mm-hmm. to from very clever people in, in in history, very clever philosophers, to really investigate this scientifically. But now suddenly we have a plethora of tools. Firstly, we have all of the neuroscience tools, fMRI machines, single cell recording, all of this stuff. But we also have the ability, computers and AI, to build. Uh, intelligent systems, so I think that um, uh, you know I, I think it is amazing what the human mind does and um, and and i i 'm kind of in awe of it really and uh, and I think it 's amazing that with our human minds we 're able to build things like computers and and actually even you know think and investigate about these questions I think that 's also a testament to the human mind
0: yeah, the universe built the human mind that now is building computers that help us understand both the universe and our own human mind. That's right.
1: That's exactly it. I mean, I think that's one, you know, one could say we, we are, maybe we're the mechanism by which the universe is going to try and understand itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. So let's,
0: uh, let's go to the basic building blocks of biology that I think is another angle at which you can start to understand the human mind, the human body, which is quite fascinating, which is from the basic building blocks, start to simulate, start to model how from those building blocks you can construct bigger and bigger, more complex systems, maybe one day the entirety of the human biology. So here's another problem that I thought to be impossible to solve, which is protein folding. And AlphaFold or uh, specific AlphaFold two uh, did just that. It solved protein folding. I think it's one of the biggest breakthroughs, uh, certainly in the history of structural biology, but uh, in general, in, in science. Um, maybe from a high level, what is it and how does it work? Mm-hmm. And then we can ask some fascinating sure. uh, questions after.
1: Sure. Um, so maybe uh, to explain it uh, to people not familiar with protein folding is, you know, first of all, I'll explain proteins, which is, you know, proteins are essential to all life every function in your body depends on proteins. Sometimes they're called the workhorses of biology. And if you look into them, and I've, you know obviously as part of AlphaFold, I've been researching proteins and, and, and structural biology for the last few years. You know They're amazing little bio nanomachines, proteins. They're incredible. If you actually watch little videos of how they work, animations of how they work. And um, proteins are specified by their genetic sequence called their amino acid sequence. So you can think of it as their genetic uh, makeup. And then in the body... Uh, in in nature, they when they when, when they fold up into a three D structure. So you can think of it as a string of beads, and then they fold up into a ball. Now the key thing is you want to know what that three D structure is. Um, because the structure, the 3D structure of a protein uh, is what uh, helps to determine what does it do, the function it does in your body. Uh, and also, if you're interested in drug drugs or, or disease, you need to understand that 3D structure. Because if you want to target something with a drug compound about to block the, something the protein's is doing, uh, you need to understand where it's going to bind on the surface of the protein. So obviously, in order to do that, you need to understand the three D structure.
0: So the structure is mapped to the function. The
1: structure is mapped to the function, and the structure is obviously somehow specified by the by the amino acid sequence. And that's the in essence, the protein folding problem is: can you just from the amino acid sequence, the one dimensional uh, string of letters, can you uh, immediately computationally predict? The 3D structure. Right. And this has been a, a grand challenge in biology for over 50 years. So I think it was first articulated by Christian Anfinsen, a Nobel Prize winner in 1972, uh, as part of his Nobel Prize winning lecture. And he just speculated this should be possible to go from the amino acid sequence to the 3D structure. But he didn't say how. So it a, it, it, I, I, you know, it's been described to me as, as equivalent to Fermat's last theorem, yeah. but for biology. Right? It, you
0: should, as somebody that uh, very well might win the Nobel Prize in the future, but outside of that, you you should do more of that kind of thing in the margins, Just put random things yeah, right. that will exactly. take like two hundred years <laughs> to solve.
1: Set people off for two hundred years. <laughs> it should be possible, exactly. And just don't give any details. <laughs> exactly. I think everyone should, exactly should be. I'll, I'll have to remember that for future. So yeah. So he set off. You know, with this one throwaway remark, just like Fermat. You know, he he set off this whole fifty-year uh, 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 field, really, of of computational biology. And, and they had, you know, they got stuck. They hadn't really got very far with doing this. And, and um, until now, until AlphaFold came along, this is done experimentally right? Very painstakingly. So the rule of thumb is, and you have to like crystallize the protein, which is really difficult. Some proteins can't be crystallized like membrane proteins. And then you have to use very expensive electron microscopes or x-ray crystallography machines, really painstaking work to get the 3D structure and visualize the 3D structure. So the rule of thumb in, in, in experimental biology is that it takes one PhD student, their entire PhD to do one protein. Uh, And with AlphaFold2, we're able to predict the 3D structure in a matter of seconds. Um, and so we were, you know, over Christmas, we did the whole human proteome or every protein in the human body, all 20,000 proteins. So the human proteome is like the equivalent of the human genome, but on protein space and, uh, and sort of revolutionized really what, uh, 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 structural biologists can do because now, um, they don't have to worry about these painstaking experimental, you know, should they put all of that effort in or not, they can almost just look up the structure of their proteins like a Google search.
0: And so there's a data set on which it's Trained and how to map this amino acid sequence. First of all, it's incredible that a protein, this little chemical computer, is able to do that computation itself in some kind of distributed way and do it very quickly. Mm-hmm. That's a weird thing. And they evolved that way because, you know, in the beginning, I mean, that's a great invention, just the protein itself. Yes. Earth. I mean, and then they there's, I think, probably a, a history of like uh, they evolved uh to have many of these proteins and those proteins figure out how to be computers themselves so, in such a way that you can create structures that can interact in complex ways with each other in order to form high level functions i mean it's a weird system that they figured it out
1: well for sure i mean we you know maybe we should talk about the origins of life too but proteins themselves i think are magical and incredible uh uh, uh as i said little little bio nanomachines and um and and actually Le- leventhal who is another scientist uh, uh, c- a contemporary of amphinson uh he 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 coined this leventhal what became known as leventhal's paradox which is exactly what you're saying he calculated roughly a protein an average protein which is maybe 2000 amino acids uh, uh, bases long is um is is can fold in maybe 10 to the power 300 different conformations so there's 10 to the power 300 different ways that protein could fold up and yet somehow in nature Physics solves this. Solves this in a matter of milliseconds. So proteins fold up in your body in you know sometimes in in fractions of a, of a second. Mm-hmm. So ha- physics is somehow solving that search problem. And just
0: to be clear, yeah. in many of these cases, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. There's often a unique way for that sequence to form itself. Yes. So among that huge number of possibilities, yes, it figures out a way how to stably. Uh, in some cases there might be a misfunction so on which leads to a lot of the disorders and stuff like that but yes most of the time it's a unique mapping and that unique mapping is not obvious no
1: exactly that's just what the
0: problem no, is no
1: exactly so there's a unique mapping usually uh, in a healthy in if you, if it's healthy and as you say in disease so for example Alzheimer's one 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 conjecture is that it's because of a misfolded protein a protein that folds in the wrong way amyloid beta protein so um and then because it folds in the wrong way it gets tangled up right in your in in your neurons so um it's super important to understand both uh, healthy functioning and, and, and also disease is to understand, uh, you know, what what these things are doing and how they're structuring. Of course, the next step is sometimes proteins change shape when they interact with something. So um, they're not just static necessarily in, in in biology.
0: Maybe you can give some interesting, sort of beautiful things to you about these early days of alpha fold, of, of solving this problem because, Unlike games, this is real physical systems that are less amenable to self play type of mechanisms sure right? the the size of the data set is smaller mm-hmm. that you might otherwise like, so you have to be very clever about certain things. Is there something you could speak to um what was very hard to solve and what are some beautiful aspects about the, the solution?
1: Yeah, I, I, I would had. say AlphaFold is the most complex and also probably most meaningful system we've built so far. So it, it's been an amazing time actually in the last, you know, two, three years to see that come through. Because um, as we talked about earlier, you know, games is what we started on, uh, building things like AlphaGo and AlphaZero. But really, the ultimate goal was to um, not just to crack games, it was just to 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 build use them to bootstrap general learning systems. We could then apply to real world challenges, specifically, my passion is scientific challenges, like protein folding, and then alpha fold, of course, is our first big proof point of that. and so um, you know in terms of the data. Uh, and the amount of innovations that had to go into it, we, you know, it was like th- more than 30 different component algorithms needed to be put together to crack the protein folding. Um, I think some of the big innovations were that, um, h- kind of building in some hard coded constraints around physics and evolutionary biology, um, to constrain sort of things like the bond angles, uh, uh, uh in the, in the, in the protein and things like that, um, a lot, but not to impact the learning system. So still allowing uh, the system to be able to learn the physics uh, itself um, from the examples that we had. And the examples, as you say, there are only about 150,000 proteins, even after 40 years of experimental biology, only around 150,000 proteins have been the structures have been found out about. So that was our training set, which is um, much less than normally we would like to use. Um, but using various tricks, things like self-distillation, so actually using AlphaFold predictions, um, some of the best predictions that it thought was highly confident in, we put them back into the training set, mm-hmm. right, to make the training set bigger. Um, that was critical to to AlphaFold working. So there was actually a huge number of different um, uh, innovations like that that were required to to ultimately crack the problem. AlphaFold one what it produced was a distogram mm-hmm. so a, a kind of a, a matrix of the pairwise distances between all of the molecules in the in the in the protein and then there had to be a separate optimization process to uh, uh, create the 3d structure uh, and what we did for AlphaFold 2 is make it truly end-to-end. So we went straight from the amino acid sequence of, of, of uh, bases to uh, the 3D structure directly without going through this intermediate step. And in machine learning, what we've always found is that the more end-to-end you can make it, the better the system. And it's probably because... Um, we, you know, the, In the end, the system's better at learning what the constraints are than, than, than we are as the human designers of specifying it. So anytime you can let it flow end to end and actually just generate what it is you're really looking for, in this case, the 3D structure, uh, you're better off than having this intermediate step, which you then have to handcraft the next step for. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's better to let the gradients and the learning flow all the way through the system um, from the endpoint, the end output you want to the inputs.
0: So that's a good way to start on a new problem, Handcrafting a bunch of stuff, add a bunch of manual constraints with a small end-to-end learning piece or a small learning piece and grow that learning piece until it consumes the whole thing.
1: That's right. And so you can also see, you know, this is a bit of a method we've developed over doing many sort of successful alphas. So we call them alpha X projects, yeah. right? Is, and the, the easiest way to see that is the evolution of alpha Go to alpha zero. So alpha Go was um, a learning system, but it was specifically trained to only play Go. Right. So uh, and what we wanted to do with the first version of AlphaGo is just get to world champion performance no matter how we did it. Right. And then and then, of course, AlphaGo Zero, we, we, we remove the need to use human games as a starting point right? So it, it could just play against itself from random starting point from the beginning. So that removed the the need for human knowledge uh, about Go. And then finally, AlphaZero then generalized it so that any things we had in there, the system, including things like symmetry of the Go board, uh, were removed. So that AlphaZero could play from scratch any two-player game. And then MuZero, which is the final, the, our latest version of that set of things, was then extending it so that you didn't even have to give it the rules of the game. It would learn that for itself. So it could also deal with computer games as well as board games so that line of alpha go alpha
0: go zero alpha zero mu zero that's the full trajectory of what you can
1: take from uh
0: imitation learning to full self supervised learning
1: yeah exactly and learning learning uh the entire structure of the environment you're put in from scratch right? And and, and and bootstrapping it uh, through self-play uh, yourself. But the thing is, it would have been impossible, I think, or very hard for us to build alpha zero or mu zero first out right. of the box. Even so-
0: psychologically, because you have to believe in yourself for a very long time you're you're constantly dealing with doubt because yeah. a lot of people say that it's impossible to, exactly to so it was hard
1: that. enough just to do go as you were saying everyone thought that was impossible uh, or at least a decade away um from when we when we did it in back in 2015 uh, you know 2016 and um and so yes it would have been psychologically probably very difficult as well as the fact that of course we learned a lot by building alpha go first Right. So it's, I think this is why I call AI an engineering science. It's one of the most fascinating science disciplines, but it's also an engineering science in the sense that unlike natural sciences, um, the phenomenon you're studying doesn't exist out in nature. You have to build it first. So you have to build the artifact first, and then you can study how, how, uh, and pull it apart and how it works.
0: This is tough to, uh, Ask you this question because you probably will say it's everything but let's let's try let's try to think through this because you're in a very interesting position where deep mind is a place of some of the most uh, brilliant ideas in the history of AI but it's also a place of brilliant engineering so how much of solving intelligence this big goal for deep mind how much of it is science how much is engineering so how much is the algorithms how much is the data mm-hmm. how much is the Hardware compute infrastructure, how much is it the software compute infrastructure yeah um what else is there? How much is the human infrastructure <laughs> and like just the humans interacting in certain kinds of ways sure. in all the space of all those ideas and how much is maybe like philosophy how much what's the key if um uh, if if you were to sort of look back like if we go forward two hundred years and look back, what was the key thing that solved intelligence? Is the well, ideas a, <laughs> or the engineering? I think it's a
1: combination. I, first of all, of course, it's a combination of all those things, but the, the ratios of them changed over over time. So <laughs> yeah. so um, even Shit. in the last 12 years, so we started DeepMind in 2010, which is hard to imagine now because 2010, it's only 12 short years ago, but nobody was talking about AI. Uh, you know, I don't know if you remember back to your MIT days. you know, No one was talking about it. I, I did a postdoc at MIT back around then and it was sort of thought of as a well look we know ai doesn't work we tried this hard in the 90s at places like MIT yes. mostly losing using logic systems and old fashioned sort of good old fashioned ai we would call it now um, people like Minsky and 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 Patrick Winston and you know all these characters, yeah. right? And I used to debate a few of them, and they used to think I was mad thinking about that some new advance could be done with learning systems. And yes. um, I was actually pleased to hear that because at least you know you're on a unique track at that point, <laughs> right? Even if every all of your you know professors <laughs> yeah, are telling true. you you're mad. It's true. And of course in industry, uh, you couldn't we couldn't get you know it was difficult to get two cents together, uh, and which is hard to imagine now as well, given that it's the biggest sort of buzzword in in VCs and 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 fundraising's easy and all these kind of things today. So back in 2010, it was very difficult. And what we the reason we started then and, and Shane and I used to discuss um uh, uh what were the sort of founding tenets of deep mind and it was ver- various things one was um algorithmic advances so deep learning you know jeff hinton and co had just had just sort of invented that in academia but no one in industry knew about it uh we, we love reinforcement learning we thought that could be scaled up but also understanding about the human brain had advanced um quite a lot uh in the in the decade prior with fMRI machines and other things so we could get some good hints about architectures and algorithms and 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 sort of um representations maybe that the brain uses so as at a systems level not at a implementation level um and then the other big things were compute and GPUs, right? So we could see uh, a compute was going to be really useful and it got to a place where it become commoditized, mostly through the games industry, and and that could be taken advantage of. And then the final thing was also mathematical and theoretical definitions of intelligence. So things like AI XI, AI Xi, which uh, Shane worked on with his supervisor, Marcus Hutter, which is this sort of theoretical uh proof, really, of universal intelligence, um, which is actually a reinforcement learning system, mm-hmm. um, in the limit. I mean, it assumes infinite compute and infinite memory in the way, you know, like a Turing machine proof. Yes. But I was also waiting to see something like that, too, to, you know, like Turing machines uh, and, and computation theory that people like Turing and Shannon came up with underpins modern computer science. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I was waiting for a theory like that to sort of underpin AGI research. So when I, you know, met Shane and saw he was working on something like that, you know, that to me Was a sort of final piece of the jigsaw. So, in the early days, I would say that uh, ideas were the most important. Uh, You know, for us, it was deep reinforcement learning, scaling up deep learning. Um, Of course, we've seen transformers. So, huge leaps, I would say, you know, three or four from, if you think from 2010 till now, uh, huge evolutions, things like AlphaGo. and um and and maybe there's a few more still needed but as we get closer to ai agi um i think it engineering becomes more and more important and data because scale and of course the, the recent you know results of gpt3 and all the big language models and large models including our ones uh has shown that scale is a, is and large models are clearly going to be a necessary but perhaps not sufficient part of an agi solution
0: and Throughout that, like you said, and I'd like to give you a big thank you, you're one of the pioneers in this, is sticking by ideas like reinforcement learning, that this can actually work, Um, given actually limited success in the past. And also, uh, which we still don't know, but proudly having the best researchers in the world and talking about solving intelligence. So talking about whatever you call it, AGI or something like this, that speaking of MIT, that's that's just something not you wouldn't bring up. No, uh, not uh, not maybe you did in uh, like 40, 50 years ago, mm-hmm. but that was um, AI was a place where you do tinkering, very small scale, not very ambitious projects, yeah. and um, maybe the biggest ambitious projects were in the space of robotics and doing like the DARPA challenge. Sure, but the task of solving intelligence and believing you can. That's really, really powerful. So in order for engineering to do its work, to, to have great engineers build great systems, you have to have that belief that Threads throughout the whole thing that you can actually solve some of these impossible challenges.
1: Yeah, that's right. And 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 back in 2010, you know, our mission statement um, and still is today. You know, is it was used to be uh, solving step one, solve intelligence. Yeah. Step two, use it to solve everything else. Yes. So if you can imagine pitching that to a VC in 2010, you know, the kind of looks we we got. We managed to you know find a few uh, kooky people to back us, but <laughs> it was uh, it was tricky. And and I and it got to the point where we we wouldn't mention it to any of our professors because they would just eye roll and think we, you know, committed career suicide and, and, uh, and, and, you know, so it was, there's was a lot of things that we had to do, but we always believed it. And one th- reason, you know, by the way, one reason we, I believe I've always believed in reinforcement learning is that, that if you look at neuroscience, that is the way that the you know primate brain learns. One of the main mechanisms is the dopamine system implements some form of TD learning. It was a very mm-hmm. famous result in the late nineties, uh, uh, where they saw this in monkeys, mm-hmm. and uh, and as a, you know, p- propagating prediction error. So we it, you know again in the limit, this is this is what I think you can use neuroscience for is is you know at any at mathematics you, when you're when you're doing something as ambitious as trying to solve intelligence and you're you're you know it's blue sky research. No one knows how to do it. You 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 need to. To use any evidence or any source of information you can to help Guide you in the right direction, or give you confidence you're going in the right direction. So, so that that was one reason we pushed so hard on that. And, as, and just going back to your earlier question about organization, the other big thing that I think we innovated with at DeepMind to encourage uh, invention and and uh, and innovation was the multidisciplinary organization we built, and we still have today. So, DeepMind originally was a confluence of the of the most cutting edge knowledge in neuroscience with machine learning, engineering, and mathematics. Right. And, and gaming uh, and then since then we've built that out even further, so we have philosophers here and and uh by you know ethicists, but also other types of scientists, physicists, and so on um and that's what brings together I tried to build a sort of um new type of Bell Labs, but in its golden era right mm-hmm. uh uh and and a new expression of that. Um to try and uh foster this incredible sort of innovation machine, so talking about the humans in the machine we're, we're DeepMind the mind itself is a, l- a learning machine with a lots of amazing human minds in it um coming together to try and build these uh learning systems.
0: If we return to the big ambitious dream of alphafold that may be the early steps on a very long journey in um in biology. Do you think the same kind of approach can use to predict the structure and function of more complex biological systems? So multi-protein interaction, and then, I mean, you can go up from there, yeah. just simulating bigger and bigger systems that eventually simulate something like the human brain or the human body, it's just the big mush, the mess of, the beautiful, uh, resilient mess of biology. Do you, do you see that as a long-term
1: vision? I do, and I think, um you know, if you think about what are the things, top things I wanted to apply AI to once we had powerful enough systems, biology and curing diseases and understanding biology uh, was right up there, you know, top of my list. That's one of the reasons I personally pushed that myself and with AlphaFold. But I think AlphaFold, uh, amazing as it is, is just the beginning. Um, and 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 I hope it's uh, evidence of uh, what could be done with computational methods? So, um, you know, AlphaFold solved this this huge problem of, of the structure of proteins, but biology is dynamic. So, really, what I imagine from here, and we're working on all these things now, is protein-protein interaction, uh, protein ligand binding, so uh, reacting with molecules. Um, then you want to get build up to pathways, and then eventually a virtual cell. That's my dream. Uh, maybe in the next ten years. And I've been talking actually to a lot of biologists, friends of mine, Paul Nurse, who runs. The the Crick Institute, amazing biologists, Nobel Prize winning biologists, we've been discussing for 20 years now, virtual cells, could you build a virtual simulation of a cell? And if you could, that would be incredible for biology and disease discovery, because you could do loads of experiments on the virtual cell, and then only at the last stage, validate it in the wet lab. So you could, you know, the, in terms of the search space of discovering new drugs, you know, it takes 10 years roughly to go from, uh, uh, to, to go from a, you know, identifying a target to uh, a, a having a drug candidate. Um, maybe that could be shortened to, you know, by an order of magnitude with if you could do most of that, that, that work in silico. So in order to get to a virtual cell we have to build up uh, uh, understanding of different parts of biology and the interactions. And, and um, so we, you know, we, every, every few years we talk about this with, I talked about this with Paul. And then finally last year after AlphaFold, I said, now's the time we can finally go for it. And, and AlphaFold's the first proof point that this might be possible. Uh, and he's very excited. And we have some collaborations with his, with his lab and they're just across the road, actually from us. Uh, it's, just, you know, wonderful being here in King's cross with the Crick Institute across the road. And, and, um, And I think the next steps, you know, I think there's going to be some amazing advances in biology built on top of things like AlphaFold. Uh, We're already seeing that with the community doing that after we've open sourced it and released it. Um, And, uh, you know, I I often say that I think... Uh, if you think of uh, mathematics, is the perfect description language for, for physics. Uh, I think AI might be end up being the perfect description language for biology because um, biology is so messy, it's so emergent, so dynamic and complex. Um, I think I find it very hard to believe we'll ever get to something as elegant as Newton's laws of motions to describe a cell. Right? It's just too complicated. Um, so I think AI is the right tool for, for this. So you have
0: to um, you have to start at the basic building blocks and use AI to run the simulation for all those building blocks. So have a very strong way to do prediction of what given these building blocks, what kind of biology, how the, the function and the evolution of that biological system it's almost like a cellular automata. You have to run it, you can't analyze it from a high level. You have to take the basic ingredients, figure out the rules yeah. and let it run. But in this case, the rules are very difficult to
1: figure out. Yes, You have exactly. to learn them. That's exactly it. So it's, the biology is too complicated to figure out the rules. It's, it's, it's too emergent, too dynamic. Say compared to a physics system like a, the motion of a planet, yeah. right? And and so you have to learn the rules, and that's exactly the type of systems that we're building.
0: So you you mentioned you've open sourced AlphaFold uh, and even the data involved. To me personally, also really happy and a big thank you for open sourcing uh, the physics simulation engine that's um, that's often used for robotics research and so on. So I think that's a pretty gangster move. Uh, so what, what what's the f- What's, I mean, this, uh, very few companies or people would do that kind of thing.
1: What's the philosophy behind that? You know, it's a case by case basis, and in both those cases, we felt that was the maximum benefit to humanity to do that, and and the scientific community. In one case, the robotics uh, physics community with Majoco, so we purchased it. We purchased it, it open for op- to op- Yes, we purchased it for the express principle to open source it. So, <laughs> uh, <that's> um awesome. <laughs> so uh, you know, I hope people appreciate that. It's great to hear that that yeah. you do. And then the second thing was, and mostly we did it because the person building it is, uh uh would not able was not able to cope with. Support it anymore because it was it got too big for for him He's an amazing professor uh, who who built it in the first place so we helped him out with that and then with alphafolds even bigger I would say and I think in that case we decided that there were so many downstream applications of Alphafold um that we couldn't possibly even imagine what they all were so the best way to accelerate uh drug discovery and also fundamental research would be to to um give all that data away and 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 the and the and the system itself um you know it's been so gratifying to see what people have done that within just one year which is a short amount of time in science and uh it's been used by over 500,000 researchers have used it. We think that's almost every biologist in the world. I think there's roughly 500,000 biologists in the world, professional biologists, have used it to to look at their um, proteins of interest. Um, we've seen amazing fundamental research done. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, front cover, there was a whole special issue of science, including the front cover, which had the nuclear pore complex on it, which is one of the biggest proteins in the body. The nuclear pore complex is a protein that governs all the nutrients going in and out of your cell nucleus. So, so they're, they're like little gateways that open and close to let things go in and out of your cell nucleus. So they're really important, um, but they're huge because they're massive donut ring-shaped things. And they've been looking to try and figure out that structure for decades. And they have lots of you know experimental data, but it's too low resolution, there's bits missing. And they were able to, like a giant Lego jigsaw puzzle, use AlphaFold predictions plus experimental data and combined those two independent sources of information, uh, actually four different groups around the world were able to put it together uh, more or less simultaneously using AlphaFold predictions. So that's been amazing to see. And pretty much every pharma company, every drug company executive I've spoken to has said that their teams are using AlphaFold to accelerate whatever drugs uh, 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 they're they're trying to discover. So I think the knock-on effect has been enormous in terms of uh, uh, the impact that uh, AlphaFold has made.
0: And it's probably bringing in, it's creating biologists. It's bringing more people into the field, um, b- both on the excitement and both on the technical skills involved. And um, it's almost like uh, a gateway drug to biology. Yes, it is. Y- you and, and to get <laughs> more
1: computational people involved too, exactly. hopefully. And And I think for us, you know, the next stage, as I said, you know, in future, we have to have other considerations too. We're building on top of AlphaFold and these other ideas I discussed with you about protein-protein interactions and, and genomics and other things. And not everything will be open source. Some of it we'll, we'll do commercially because that will be the best way to actually get the most resources and impact behind it. In other ways, some other projects will do non-profit style. Um, and also we have to consider for future things as well, safety and ethics as well, like, you know, synthetic biology. There are, you know, there is dual use and we have to think about that as well. With AlphaFold, we you know we consulted with thirty different bioethicists and, and other people expert in this field to make sure it was safe before um, we released it. So there'll be other considerations in the future, but for right now, you know I think AlphaFold is a, a kind of a, a gift from us to 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 the scientific community.
0: So I'm pretty sure that something like AlphaFold uh, would be part of Nobel prizes in the future. But us humans, of course, are horrible with credit assignment, so we'll of course give it to the humans. Um, Do you think there will be a day when AI system can't be denied that it earned that Nobel Prize? Do you think we will see that in the 21st century?
1: It depends what type of AIs we end up building, right? Whether they're, um, you know, goal-seeking agents who specifies the goals, uh, who comes up with the hypotheses, who you know? Who determines which problems to tackle? Right. So and I think tweets about it. Announcement. Yes, tweets announce the results <laughs> exactly as part of it. Um, so I think right now, of course, it's 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 amazing human ingenuity that's behind these systems, and then the system, in my opinion, is just a tool. You know, it would be a bit like saying with Galileo and his telescope. You know, the ingenuity, the 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 credit should go to the telescope. I mean, it's clearly Galileo building the tool which he then uses. So I still see that in the same way today, even though the, these tools learn for themselves. Um, they, are, I think of I think of things like AlphaFold and the the things we're building as the ultimate tools for science and for, for acquiring new knowledge to help us as scientists acquire new knowledge. I think one day there will come a point where an AI system may solve or come up with something like general relativity of its own bat, not just by averaging everything on the internet or averaging everything on PubMed, although that would be interesting to see what that would come up with. Um, so that to me is a bit like our earlier debate about creativity you know, inventing Go rather than just coming up with a good Go move. And um, so I think uh, solving, I think to, to you know, if we wanted to give it the credit of like a Nobel type of thing, then it would need to invent Go uh, and sort of invent that new conjecture out of the blue um, rather than being specified by the, the the human scientists or the human creators. So I think right now that's, it's definitely just a tool.
0: Although it is interesting how far you get by averaging everything on the internet, like you said, because, you know, a lot of people do see science as you're always standing on the shoulders of giants. And the question is, how much are you really reaching up above the shoulders of giants? Maybe it's just assimilating different kinds of results of the past with ultimately this new perspective that gives you this breakthrough idea. But that idea may not be novel in the way that it can't be already discovered on the internet. Maybe the Nobel Prizes of the next hundred years are already all there on the internet to be discovered.
1: They, they could be, they could be. I mean, I think, um, this is one of the big mysteries I think is that, uh, uh, I, I First of all, I believe a lot of the big new breakthroughs that are going to come in the next few decades and even in the last decade uh, are going to come at the intersection between different subject areas where um, there'll be some new connection that's found between what seemingly were disparate areas. And, and one can even think of DeepMind, as, a, as I said earlier, as a, as a sort of interdisciplinary between neuroscience ideas and, and AI engineering ideas uh, originally. And so, um, so I think there's that. And then one of the things we can't imagine today is, and one of the reasons I think people, we were so surprised by how well large models worked is that actually it's very hard for our human minds, our limited human minds to understand what it would be like to read the whole internet, right? I think we can do a thought experiment. And I used to do this of like, well... What if I read the whole of Wikipedia, uh, what would I know? And I think our minds can just about comprehend maybe what that would be like, but the whole internet is beyond comprehension. So I think we just don't understand what it would be like to be able to hold all of that in mind, potentially, right? And then uh, active at once, and then maybe what are the connections that are available there? So I think no doubt there are huge things to be discovered just like that. But I do think there is this other type of creativity of true spark of new knowledge new idea, never thought before about, can't be averaged from things that are known, um, that really, of course, everything comes, you know, nobody creates in a vacuum, so there must be clues somewhere, but just a unique way of putting those things together. I think some of the greatest scientists in history have displayed that, I would say, although it's very hard to know, going back to their time, what was exactly known uh, when they came up with those
0: things. Although, you're, you're making me really think because just the thought experiment of deeply knowing a hundred Wikipedia pages. Mm-hmm. I don't think I can, um, I've been really impressed by Wikipedia for for technical topics. Yeah. So if you know a hundred pages or a thousand pages, I don't think you can visu- truly comprehend what's what kind of intelligence that is. Yeah. That's a pretty powerful intelligence. If you know how to use that and integrate that information correctly. Yes. I think you can go really far. Yeah. You can probably construct thought experiments based on that. Like simulate different ideas. Mm -hmm. So if this is true, let me run this thought experiment, then maybe this is true. It's not really invention. It's like just taking literally the knowledge and using it to construct a very basic simulation of the world. I mean, some argue it's romantic in part, but Einstein would do the same kind of things with a thought experiment. Yeah.
1: One could imagine doing that systematically across millions of Wikipedia pages, plus PubMed, all these things. I think there are Many, many things to be discovered like that that are hugely useful. You know, you could imagine, and I want us to do some of these things in material science, like room temperature superconductors is something on my list one day that I'd like to, like, you know, have an AI system to help build better optimized batteries, all of these sort of mechanical things. I think a systematic sort of search could be uh, guided by a model, could be, um, could be extremely powerful.
0: So speaking of which, you have a paper on nuclear fusion uh, magnetic control of tokamak plasmas through deep reinforcement learning. So you uh, you're seeking to solve nuclear fusion with deep RL. Uh, so it's doing control of high temperature plasmas. Can you explain this work? And uh, can AI eventually solve nuclear fusion?
1: <laughs> it's been very fun last year or two uh, and very productive because we've been ticking off a lot of my uh, dream projects, if you like, of things that I've collected over the years of, of areas of science that I would like to, I think, could be very transformative if we helped accelerate and uh, are really interesting problems, scientific challenges in and of themselves. So and- this is energy. So energy. Yes, exactly. So energy and climate. So we talked about disease and biology as being one of the biggest places I think AI can help with. I think energy and climate uh, is another one, so maybe they would be my top two. Um, and fusion is one one area I think AI can help with. Now, fusion has many challenges, mostly physics, and material science, and engineering challenges as well to, to build these massive fusion reactors and contain the plasma. And what we try to do, and whenever we go into a new field it, uh, to apply our systems, is we look for, um, we talk to domain experts, we try and find the best people in the world to collaborate with. Um, in this case, in Fusion, we, we collaborated with EPFL in Switzerland, the Swiss Technical Institute, who are amazing. They have a test reactor that they, they were willing to let us use, which, you know, I double checked with the team we were going to use carefully and safely. <laughs> um, I was impressed they managed to persuade them to let us use it. And, um, and it's a, it's an amazing test reactor they have there and, uh, they try all sorts of pretty crazy experiments on it. And, um, the, 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 what we tend to look at is if we go into a new domain like fusion, what are all the bottleneck problems? Uh, like thinking from first principles, you know, what are all the bottleneck problems that are still stopping fusion working today? And then we look at, we, you know, we get a fusion expert to tell us, and then we look at those bottlenecks and we look at the ones, which ones are amenable to our AI methods today. Yes. Right. And 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 then and, and would be interesting from a research perspective, from our point of view, from an AI point of view, and that would address one of their bottlenecks. And in this case, plasma control was was perfect. So, you know, the plasma, it's a million degrees Celsius, something like that's hotter than the sun. Um, and there's obviously no material that can contain it. So they have to be containing these magnetic, very powerful, superconducting magnetic fields. Um, but the problem is plasma is pretty unstable, as you imagine. You're, you're kind of holding a mini sun, mini mm-hmm. star in a reactor. So you, know, you, you kind of want to predict ahead of time what the plasma is going to do so you can man- move the magnetic field within a few milliseconds, you know, to to basically contain what it's going to do next. So it seems like a perfect problem if you think of it for like a reinforcement learning prediction problem. So, uh, you know, you got a controller, you're going to move the magnetic field. And and until we came along, you know, they were they were doing it with, with traditional operational uh, research type of uh, controllers, uh, which are kind of handcrafted. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, of course, they can't react in the moment to something the plasma is doing. They have, they have to be hard coded. And again, knowing that that's normally our go-to solution is, we would like to learn that instead. And they also had a simulator of these plasma. So there were lots of criteria that matched what we we like to, to, to use.
0: So can AI eventually solve nuclear fusion?
1: Well, so we with this problem, and we published it in a nature paper last year, uh, we held the fusion that we held the plasma in a specific shape. So actually it's almost like carving the plasma into different shapes okay. and control and hold it there for a record amount of time so um so that's one of the problems of, of fusion sort of um solved so but, uh,
0: have a controller that's able to no matter the shape uh contain it contain it. yeah
1: contain it and hold it in structure and there's different shapes that are better for for the energy productions called droplets and 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 so on so um so that was huge and now we're looking we're talking to lots of fusion startups to see what's the next problem we can tackle um, Uh, In the fusion area.
0: So, another fascinating place um, in a paper titled Pushing the Frontiers of Density Functionals by Solving the Fractional Electron Problem. So, you're taking on modeling and simulating the quantum mechanical behavior of electrons. Yes. Um, Can you explain this work and can AI model? and simulate arbitrary quantum mechanical systems in the future.
1: Yeah, so this is another problem I've had my eye on for, you know, a decade or more, which is um, uh, sort of simulating the properties of electrons. If you can do that, you can basically describe how elements and materials and substances work. So it's kind of like fundamental if you want to advance material science, mm. um, and uh, you know we have Schrödinger's equation, and then we have approximations to that density functional theory. These things are you know are famous, and um, people try and write approximations to to these uh, uh, to these functionals and and kind of come up with descriptions of the electron clouds where they're going to go, how they're going to um, interact when you put two elements together, uh, and what we try to do is learn a simulation, uh, uh, learn a functional that will describe more chemistry types of chemistry so um, until now you know you can run expensive simulations but then you can only simulate very small uh, molecules very simple molecules we would like to simulate large materials Um, and so uh today there's no way of doing that and we're building up towards uh building functionals that approximate schrodinger's equation and then allow you to describe uh, uh what the electrons are doing um, and all material sort of science and material properties are governed by the electrons and and how they interact.
0: So, have a good summarization of the simulation through the functional, um, but one that is still close to what the actual simulation would come out with. So, what? Um, how difficult is that task? What's involved in that task? Is it running those those complicated simulations yeah. and learning the task of mapping? From the initial conditions and the parameters of the simulation, learning what the functional would be.
1: Yeah. So it's pretty tricky and we've done it with um you know the nice thing is we there are we can run a lot of the simulations the the, the molecular dynamic simulations on our compute clusters and so that generates a lot of data so in this case the data is generated so we like those sort of systems and that's why we use games it's simulator generated data uh and we can kind of create as much of it as we want really um and just let's leave some you know if any computers are free in the cloud we just run, we run some of these calculations, right? Compute cluster calculations. I like how the,
0: the, the free compute time is used up on quantum mechanics. Yeah, quantum mechanics,
1: exactly. Simulations <laughs> and protein simulations and other things. And so, um, and so, you know, when you're not searching on YouTube for, for yeah. video, cat videos, we're using those computers <laughs> usefully in quantum chemistry. It's the idea. Fine. And, and uh, putting them good. to good use. And then, yeah, and then all of that computational data that's generated, we can then try and learn the functionals from that, which of course are way more efficient uh, once we learn the functional than um, running those simulations would be.
0: Do you think one day AI may allow us to do something like basically crack open physics, so do something like travel faster than the speed of light?
1: My ultimate aim has always been with AI is um, the reason I am personally working on AI for my whole life is to build a tool to help us understand the universe. So I wanted to, and that means physics really, and the nature of reality. So, um, Uh, I don't think we have systems that are capable of doing that yet. But when we get towards AGI, I think um, that's one of the first things I think we should apply AGI to. I would like to test the limits of physics and our knowledge of physics. There's so many things we don't know. This is one thing I find fascinating about science and, you know, as a huge proponent of the scientific method as being one of the greatest ideas humanity's ever had and allowed us to progress with our knowledge. I think as a, a true scientist, I think what you find is the more you find out uh, you, the more you realise we don't know, and 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 I always think that it's surprising that more people don't aren't troubled. You know, every night I think about all these things we interact with all the time that we have no idea how they work: time, consciousness, yeah. gravity, life. We can't. I mean, these are all the fundamental things of nature. I think the way we we don't really know what they are to live life.
0: We uh, pin certain assumptions on them and kind of treat our assumptions as if they're fact. Yeah, that allows us to sort of box them off somehow. Yeah, box them off somehow. Yeah. But you, the reality is, when you think of time, you should remind yourself. You should put it off the, sh- uh, take it off the shelf and realize, like, no, we have a bunch of assumptions. There's still a lot of. There's even now a lot of debate. There's a lot of uncertainty about exactly what is time. Uh, is there an error of time? You know, there's there's a lot of fundamental questions that you can't just make assumptions about. And maybe um, AI allows you to um, not put anything on the shelf. <laughs> yeah. Well, not make any uh, hard assumptions and really open it up and see what...
1: Exactly. Could... I think we should be truly open-minded about that and uh, exactly that, not be dogmatic to a particular theory. Um, it'll also allow us to build better tools, experimental tools, eventually, that can then test certain theories that may not be testable today about as things about like what we spoke about at the beginning, about the computational nature of the universe, how one might, if that was true, how one might go about testing that. Right. And, and how much, uh, you know, there are people who've conjectured people like, uh, Scott Aronson and others about, uh, you know, how much information can a specific Planck unit of space and time contain? Mm-hmm. Right. So one might be able to think about testing those ideas. If you had, um, AI helping you build some new, exquisite uh, uh, experimental tools. This is what I imagine that, you know many decades from now we'll be able to do.
0: And what kind of questions can be answered through running a simulation of, of them? So there's a bunch of physics simulations you can imagine that could be run mm-hmm. in an, so some kind of efficient way, much like you're doing in the quantum simulation work. And perhaps even the origin of life, so yep. figuring out how... Going even back before the work of AlphaFold begins, of how this all whole, whole thing um, emerges from a rock, yes, from a static thing. What, what do you th- do? You think AI will allow us to? Is that something you have your eye on? Is trying to understand the origin of life? First of all, yourself. What, what do you think? Um, how the heck did life originate on Earth?
1: Yeah, well, maybe we, I'll come to that in a second. But I think the ultimate use of AI is to kind of use it to accelerate science to the maximum. So I um, think of it a little bit like the tree of all knowledge. If you imagine that's all the knowledge there is in the universe to attain. And uh, we sort of barely scratched the surface of that so far. In even though you know we've 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 done pretty well since the Enlightenment, right? As humanity, and I think AI will turbocharge all of that, like we've seen with AlphaFold. And I want to explore as much of that tree of knowledge as it's possible to do. And um, and I think that involves AI helping us with 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 understanding or finding patterns. Um, but also potentially designing and building new tools, experimental tools. So I think that's all, uh, uh, and and also running simulations and learning simulations. All of that we're already we're sort of doing at a at a at a at a you know baby steps level mm-hmm. here. But I can imagine that in 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 the decades to come, as uh, you know, what's the full flourishing of of that line of thinking? It's going to be truly incredible. I would say.
0: If I visualize this tree of knowledge, something tells me that that knowledge for, tree of knowledge for humans is much smaller. In the set of all possible trees of knowledge, it's actually quite small given our cognitive limitations, um, limited cognitive capabilities, that even with the, with the tools we build, we still won't be able to understand a lot of things. And that's perhaps what non-human systems might be able to reach farther, not just as tools. But in themselves, understanding something that they can bring back.
1: Yeah, it could well be. So, I mean, there's so many things that 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 are sort of encapsulated in what you just said there. I think first of all, um, there's there's two different things. There's like what do we understand today? Yeah. What could the human mind understand, and what is the totality of what is there to be understood? Yeah. Right. And so there 's three concentric you know you can think of them as three large and larger trees or exploring more branches of that tree and i I think with ai we 're going to explore that whole lot now. The question is is uh, uh, you know if you think about what is the totality of what could be understood, um, there may be some fundamental physics reasons why certain things can 't be understood, like what 's outside a simulation or outside the universe maybe it 's not understandable from within the universe, um, so that's there may be some hard constraints like that you know it could be
0: smaller constraints like uh, we think of space-time as fundamental. For us, our human brains are really used to this idea of a three-dimensional world
1: with time. Right. Maybe, but our tools could go beyond that. Yeah. They wouldn't have that limitation necessarily. They could think in eleven dimensions, twelve dimensions, whatever is needed. But um, we could still maybe understand that in several different ways. The example I always give is um, when I, you know, play Gary Kasparov at speed chess, or we've talked about chess and these kind of things. Um, You know, he if you if you if you're reasonably good at chess, you can um, you can't come up with the move Gary comes up with in Mm -hmm. his move, but he can explain it to you, and you can understand, and you can understand post hoc the reasoning. Yeah. So so I think there's a there's an even further level of like, well, maybe you couldn't have invented that thing, but (laughs) but using going back to using language again, perhaps you can understand and appreciate that same way that you can appreciate you know Vivaldi or Mozart or something without you can appreciate the beauty of that without um being able to to construct it yourself right invent yeah. the music yourself so i think we see this in all forms of life so it'll be that times you know a million but it would you can imagine also one sign of intelligence is the ability to explain things clearly and simply mm. right you know people like richard Feynman, another one of my all-time heroes used to say that right if you can't you know if you can explain it something simply then you that's a that's the best sign a complex topic simply then that's one of the best signs of you understanding it yeah so um, i can
0: see myself talking trash in an ai system in that way
1: yes <laughs> uh it's,
0: it's it gets frustrated how dumb i am and trying to explain something <laughs> to me i was like well that means you're not intelligent because if you were intelligent you'd be able to explain it simply
1: yeah of yeah. course you know there's there's also the other option of course we could enhance ourselves and and with our devices we we are already sort of symbiotic with our compute devices right with our phones and other things and you know there's stuff like Neuralink and etc. that could be could could advance that further um, so i think there's lots of lots of really amazing possibilities uh that, that i could foresee from here
0: well let me ask you some wild questions so out there looking for friends do you think there's a lot of alien civilizations out there
1: so i guess this also goes back to your origin of life question too because i think that that's key um my personal opinion looking at all this and and you know it's one of my hobbies physics i guess so so i i you know it's it's, something i think about a lot and talk to a lot of experts on and, and 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 read a lot of books on and i think my feeling currently is that that we are alone i think that's the most likely scenario given what what evidence we have so um and the reasoning is i think that you know we've tried since, since uh, things like SETI program and i guess since the dawning of the the space age uh we've you know had telescopes open radio telescopes and other things and if you think about um and try to detect signals now if you think about the evolution of humans on earth we could have easily been um a million years ahead of our time now or a million years behind right easily with just some slightly different quirk thing happening hundreds of thousands of years ago, uh, you know, things could have been slightly different. If the meteor had hit the dinosaurs a million years earlier, maybe things would have evolved. Uh, uh, we'd be a million years uh, ahead of where we are now. So what that means is if you imagine where humanity will be in a few hundred years, let alone a million years, especially if we hopefully um you know solve things like climate change and other things and we continue to flourish um and we build things like ai and we do space traveling and all of the stuff that 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 humans have dreamed of for forever right and sci-fi has talked about forever um we will be spreading across the stars Right, and von Neumann famously calculated. You know, it would only take about a million years if you sent out von Neumann probes to the nearest, you know, the nearest uh, uh, other solar systems, and and then they bu- All they did was build two more versions of themselves and sent those two out to the next nearest systems. Uh, you, you know, within a million years, I think you would have one of these probes in every system in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually a, in cosmo- cosmological time. That's actually a very short amount of time. So and and you know we people like Dyson have thought about constructing Dyson spheres around stars to collect all the energy coming out of the star you know that there would be constructions like that would be visible across space um probably even across a galaxy so uh, and then you know if you think about all of our radio television uh, emissions that have gone out since since the you know 30s and 40s um imagine a million years of that and now hundreds of civilizations doing that when we opened our ears at the t- point we got t- technologically sophisticated enough in the space age, we should have heard a cacophony of voices. We should have joined that cacophony of voices. And what, what we did, we opened our ears and we heard nothing. And many people who argue that there are aliens would say, well, we haven't really done exhaustive search yet. And maybe we're looking in the wrong bands and and we've got the wrong devices and we wouldn't notice what an alien form was like to it'd be so different to what we're used to. You know, I not I don't really buy that. That it shouldn't be as difficult as that. Like we I think we've searched enough.
0: There should be everywhere.
1: If it was yeah, it should be everywhere. We should see Dyson spheres being put up, suns blinking in and out. You know, there should be a lot of evidence for those things. And then there are other people who argue, well, the sort of safari view of like, well, we're a primitive species still because we're not spacefaring yet and 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 we're, you know, there's some kind of global like universal rule not to interfere. Yeah, Star Trek rule. But like look, look, we can't even coordinate humans. To deal with climate change and we're one species. What, what is the chance that of all of these different human civilizations, you know, uh, alien civilizations, they would have the same priorities and, 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 and agree across, the, you know, these kind of matters? And even if that was true and we were in some sort of safari for our own good, to me, that's not much different from the simulation hypothesis. Because what does it mean, the simulation hypothesis? I think in its most fundamental level, it means what we're seeing is not quite reality right? it's something there's something more deeper underlying it maybe computational now if we were in a if we were in a sort of safari park and everything we were seeing was a hologram and it was projected by the aliens or whatever that to me is not much different than thinking we're inside of another universe because we still can't see true reality right
0: i mean there's there's other explanations it could be that the way they're communicating is just fundamentally different that we're too dumb to understand the much better methods of communication they have it could be i mean i mean it's, it's silly to say but our own thoughts could be the methods by which they're communicating like the place from which our ideas writers talk about this like the muse yeah like the, the i mean it sounds like very kind of uh um, wild but it could be thoughts it could be some interactions with our mind that we think are originating from us is actually something that uh is coming from other life forms elsewhere consciousness itself might be that
1: it could be but i don't see any sensible argument to the why why would all of the alien species be behave using this in this method. way yeah, yeah some of them yeah. will be more primitive they will be close to our <laughs> level You know, there would there should be a whole sort of normal distribution of these things, right? Some would be aggressive, some would be, you know, uh, uh, curious. Others would be very stoical and philosophical, because you know maybe they're a million years older than us. But it's not; it shouldn't be like. I mean, one one alien civilization might be like that, communicating thoughts and others. But I don't see why you know potentially the hundreds there should be would be uniform in this way.
0: Right? It could be a violent dictatorship that the the people, the alien civilizations that. Uh, become successful become um, uh, gain the ability to be destructive, an order of magnitude more destructive um, but of course the the sad thought well, either humans are very special. We took a lot of leaps that arrived at what it means to be human yeah. um there 's a question there, which was the hardest yeah. which was the most special. But also, if others have reached this level, and maybe many others have reached this level, the great filter yeah. that prevented them from going farther to becoming a multiplanetary species or reaching out into the stars. And those are really important questions for us. Whether mm-hmm. um, Whether there's other alien civilizations out there or not, this is very useful for us to think about. If we destroy ourselves, how will we do it? And how easy is it to do?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, these are big questions and I've thought about these a lot. But the, the, the interesting thing is that if we're if we're alone, that's somewhat comforting from the great filter perspective, because it probably means the great filters were beh- are past us. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure they are. So the, by, in, going back to your origin of life question, there are some incredible things that no one knows how happened. Like obviously the first life form from chemical soup, that seems pretty hard. But I would guess the multicellular. I wouldn't be that surprised if we saw single cell, s- single cell sort of life forms elsewhere, uh, bacteria type things. But multicellular life seems incredibly hard. That step of you know capturing mitochondria and then sort of using that as part of yourself, you know, when you've just eaten it. Would
0: you say that's the biggest, the the most uh, like if if you had to choose one sort of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide yes. to the Galaxy one sentence summary
1: of like oh those clever creatures. Did this? There would be the multi. I the think that's probably the one that that's the biggest. I mean, there's a great book called "The Ten Great Great Inventions of Evolution" um, by Nick Lane, and he speculates on ten ten of these. You know, what could be great filters? Um, I think that's one. I think the the advent of 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 intelligence and and conscious intelligence, and in order, you know, to us to be able to do science and things like that, is huge as well. I mean, it's only evolved once, as far as you know, uh, in 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 Earth history. So that would be a later candidate. But there's uh, certainly for the early candidates, I think multicellular life forms is is huge.
0: By the way, what, it's interesting to ask you if you can hypothesize about what is the origin of intelligence. Is it uh, that we started cooking meat over fire? Is it that we somehow figured out that we could be very powerful and we started collaborating? So cooperation between um, our ancestors so that we can overthrow the alpha male uh what, what is it richard i talked to richard ranham who thinks we're all just beta males who figured out how to collaborate to <laughs> defeat the one yes. the, the dictator the yes. uh, authoritarian alpha male um that controlled the tribe um is there other explanation did was there um 2001 space yeah, odyssey type of monolith yeah. that came down to earth
1: well I I think um I think all of those things you suggest are good candidates fire and and and, <laughs> and, and cooking right so that's clearly moment, important for yeah. en- for energy you know energy efficiency yeah. uh cooking our meat and then and then being able to 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 be more efficient about eating it and getting it, consuming the energy, um, I think that's huge. And then utilizing fire and tools, I think you're right about the the tribal cooperation aspects and probably language as part of that. Yes, um, because probably that's what allowed us to outcompete Neanderthals and 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 perhaps less cooperative species. So um, so that may be the case. Tool making, spears, axes. Uh, I think that let us, I mean, I think it's pretty clear now that humans were responsible for a lot of the extinctions of megafauna, um, especially in, in in the Americas when humans arrived. So uh, you can imagine once you discover tool usage, how powerful that would have been and how scary for animals. So I think all of those could have been explanations for it. You know, the interesting thing is that it's a bit like general intelligence too is it's very costly to begin with to have a, a brain uh, and especially a general purpose brain rather than a special purpose one because the amount of energy our brains use i think it's like 20 percent of the body's energy mm. and it's it's massive and when you're thinking chess one of the f- funny things that, uh, that we, we used to say is it's as much as a racing driver uses for a whole you know formula one race you just playing a game of you know yeah. serious high level chess which you, you know you wouldn't think just sitting there um, because the brain's using so much uh, uh energy so in order for An animal, an organism, to justify that there has to be uh, a huge payoff, and the problem with with half a brain or half, you know, uh, uh, intelligence, say an IQs of you know uh, 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 of like a monkey brain, it's it's not clear you can justify that evolutionary until you get to the human level brain, and so. But how do you how do you do that jump? It's very difficult, which is why I think it's only been done once from the sort of specialized brains that you see in animals to this sort of general purpose chewing powerful brains that humans have. Um and uh, which allows us to invent the modern modern world. Um, and, uh, y- you know, it takes a lot to, to cross that barrier. And I think we've seen the same with AI systems, which is that uh, maybe until very recently, it's always been easier to craft a specific solution to a problem like chess than it has been to build a general learning system that could potentially do many things. Because initially, uh, that system will be way worse than uh, less efficient than the specialized system.
0: So one of the interesting quirks of the human mind, of this evolved system, is that it appears to be conscious. This thing that we don't quite understand, but it seems very, um, very special, is ability to have a subjective experience, that it feels like something, uh, to eat a cookie, the deliciousness of it, or see a color and that kind of stuff. Do you think in order to solve intelligence, we also need to solve consciousness along the way? Do you think AGI systems need to have consciousness in order to be truly intelligent?
1: Yeah, we thought about this a lot, actually. And um, I think that my my guess is that consciousness and intelligence are double dissociable. So you can have one without the other, both ways. And I think you can see that with consciousness in that I think some animals and pets you have a pet dog or something like that. You can see some of the higher animals and dolphins, things like that, are uh, have self awareness and uh, are very sociable. Um, seem to dream. Um, you know those kinds of a lot of the traits one would regard as being kind of conscious and self aware. Um, and but yet they're not that smart, right? Uh, so they're not that intelligent by by say IQ standards or something like that.
0: Yeah, it's also possible that our understanding of intelligence is flawed like putting an IQ to it. Maybe maybe the thing that a dog can do is actually gone very far along the path of intelligence. And we humans are just able to play chess and maybe
1: write poems. Right. But if we go back to the idea of AGI and general intelligence, you know, dogs are very specialized, right? Most animals are pretty specialized. They can be amazing at what they do, but they're like kind of elite sports sports people or something, right? So they do one thing extremely well because their entire brain is is optimized they've
0: right. somehow convinced the entirety of the human population to feed them and service them so in some way they're Not controlling bad.
1: yes exactly <laughs> well we co evolved to some crazy degree right uh yes. including the, the the way the dogs you know even even wag their tails and twitch their noses right we find we finding inexorably in, cute yeah um but i think um you can also see intelligence on the other side so systems like artificial systems that are amazingly smart at certain things like maybe playing go and chess and other things but they don't feel at all in any shape or form conscious in the way that you know you do to to me or I do to you and um and i think actually building ai is uh these intelligent constructs uh is one of the best ways to explore the mystery of consciousness to break it down because um we're going to have devices that are uh pretty smart at certain things or capable at certain things, but um, potentially won't have any semblance of self-awareness or other things. And in fact, I would advocate, if there's a choice, building systems in the first place, AI systems that are not conscious to begin with uh, are are just tools um, until we understand them better uh, and, and the capabilities better.
0: So on that topic, just not as the CEO of DeepMind, Um, Just as a human being, let me ask you about this one particular anecdotal evidence of the Google engineer who made a comment or uh, believed that there is some aspect of a language model, uh, the Lambda language model that exhibited sentience. So you said you believe there might be a responsibility to build systems that are not sentient. And this experience of a particular engineer, I think... I'd love to get your general opinion on this kind of thing, but I think it, it will happen more and more and more, which uh, not when engineers, but when when people out there that don't have an engineering background start interacting with increasingly intelligent systems, we anthropomorphize them. They they start to have deep, impactful um, interactions with us in a way that we miss them Yeah, when they're gone. And we sure as heck feel like they're, Living entities, self-aware entities, and maybe even we project sentience onto them. So, what, what, what's your thought about this particular uh, system? Was is uh, have you ever met a language model that's sentient?
1: <laughs> no, uh, no, and, no. And
0: what do you make of the case of when you kind of feel that there's some elements of sentience to this system?
1: Yeah. So this is you know an interesting question and uh, uh, obviously a very fundamental one. So first thing to say is I think that. Uh, None of the systems we have today, I I would say, even have one iota of uh, semblance of of consciousness or sentience. That's my personal feeling, interacting with them every day. So I think it's way premature to be discussing what that engineer talked about. I I think at the moment, it's more of a projection of the way our own minds work, which is to see uh, 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 sort of purpose and direction in almost anything that we, you know, our brains are trained to interpret uh, uh, agency. Basically, in things, uh, even in an in, inanimate things sometimes. And of course, with a, uh, a language system, because language is so fundamental to intelligence, it's going to be easy for us to anthropomorphize that. Um, I mean, back in the day, even the first. Uh, you know the dumbest sort of template chatbots ever eliza and, and 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 the ilk of the original chatbots back in the 60s fooled some people under certain circumstances right it pretended to be a psychologist so it would just basically rabbit back to you the same question you asked it back to you um and uh, some people believe that. So I don't think we can. This is why I think the Turing test is a little bit flawed as a formal test because it depends on the sophistication of the of the judge um, whether or not they they are uh, qualified to make that dis- distinction. So. I think we should uh talk to you know the the top philosophers about this, people like Daniel Dennett and uh, David Chalmers and others who've who've obviously thought deeply about consciousness. Of course, consciousness itself hasn't been well uh, there's no agreed definition if I was to you know uh speculate about that. You know, I kind of the the working definition I like is it's the way information feels when you you know it gets processed. I think maybe Max Tegmark came up with that. I like that idea. I don't know if it helps us get towards any more operational thing, but but it's 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 I think it's a nice way of viewing it. Um, I think we can obviously see from neuroscience certain prerequisites that are required, like self-awareness. I think is necessary, but not sufficient component. This idea of a self and other. And set of coherent preferences that, that that are coherent over time. You know these things are maybe memory. Um, these things are probably needed for a, a sentient or conscious being. Um, but but the reason the, the difficult thing I think for us when we get and I think this is a really interesting philosophical debate is when we get closer to AGI and 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 you know uh, and and much more powerful systems than we have today. Um, how are we going to make this judgment and? One way, which is the Turing test, is sort of a behavioral judgment. Is, is the system exhibiting all the behaviors um, that uh, a human sentient uh, or a sentient being would, would, would exhibit? Um, is it answering the right questions? Is it saying the right things? Is it indistinguishable from a human? Um, and so on. But I think there's a second thing that makes us as humans regard each other as sentient, right? Why do we why do we think this? And I debated this with Daniel Dennett, and I think there's a second reason that's over often overlooked, which is that we're running on the same substrate, right? So if we're exhibiting the same behavior, uh, more or less, as humans, and we're running on the same, you know, carbon-based biological substrate, the squishy, you know, few pounds of of flesh in our skulls. Then the most parsimonious, I think, explanation is that you're feeling the same thing as I'm feeling, right? But we will never have that second part, the substrate equivalence, with a machine. Yeah. right? So we will have to only judge based on the behavior. And I think the substrate equivalence is a critical part of why we make assumptions that we're conscious. And in fact, even with with animals, high-level animals, why we think they might be, because they're exhibiting some of the behaviors we would expect from a sentient animal. And we know they're made of the same things, biological neurons.
0: So we're going to have to come up with explanations uh, or models of the gap between substrate differences between machines and humans. Did, to get anywhere beyond the behavioral. But to me, sort of the practical question is very interesting and very important. When you have millions, perhaps billions of people believing that you have ascension AI, believing what that Google engineer believed, Mm. which I just see as an obvious, very near-term future thing. Mm. Certainly on the path to AGI, how does that change the world? What's the responsibility of the AI system to help those millions of people? Mm -hmm. Um, and also, what's the ethical thing? Because you can you can uh, make a lot of people happy hmm. by creating a meaningful, deep experience with a system that's faking it before it makes it. <laughs> yeah. And I I don't is are we the right? Like, who is to say what's the right thing to do? Should uh, AI always be tools? Like sure. why? What? Why are we constraining AI to always be tools as opposed to? Friends,
1: yeah, I think. Well, I mean, these are you know, fan, you know, fantastic questions and and also critical ones. And we've been thinking about this uh, since the start of DeepMind and before that, because we plan for success and you know yeah. how how you know, you know, however remote that looked like back in 2010. And we've always had sort of these ethical considerations as fundamental at DeepMind. Um, and my, my current thinking on the language models is, and and large models is they're not ready. We don't understand them well enough yet. Um, and in, you know, in terms of analysis tools and, and guardrails, what they can and can't do and so on to deploy them at scale, because I think, you know, there are big still ethical questions like, should an AI system always announce that it is an AI system to begin with? Probably yes. Um, it, what what do you do about answering those philosophical questions about the feelings uh, people may have about AI systems, perhaps incorrectly attributed? So I think there's a whole bunch of research that needs to be done first um, to responsibly before, you know, you can responsibly deploy these systems at scale. That will be at least be my um, current position uh, over time. I'm very confident we'll have those tools, to, like interpretability questions um, and uh, analysis questions, uh, and then with the ethical quandary, you know, I think there it's important to uh, look beyond just science. That's why I think philosophy, social sciences, even theology, other things like that, come into it where um what it, you know arts and humanities what, what what does it mean to be human and the spirit of being human and and to enhance that and and the human condition right and allow us to experience things we could never experience before and improve the the overall human condition and humanity overall you know get radical abundance solve many scientific problems solve disease so this is the era i think this is the amazing era i think we're heading into if we do it right um but we've got to be careful. We've already seen with things like social media how dual-use technologies can be misused by, firstly, by 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 bad you know bad actors or naive actors or crazy actors, right? So there's that set of just the com- common or garden use, you know, misuse of existing dual-use technology, uh, and then of course there, there's an additional uh, uh, thing that has to be overcome with AI that eventually it may have its own agency, so it could be uh, uh, good or bad in 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 of itself. So I think these questions have to be approached very carefully um, using the scientific method, I would say, in terms of hypothesis generation, careful control testing, not live A-B testing out in the world. Because with powerful technologies like AI, um, if something goes wrong, it may cause you know a lot of harm before you can fix it. Um, it's not like a you know an imaging app or game app where yeah. you know that if it, if something goes wrong, it's relatively easy to fix and and the harm's relatively small. So I think it comes with you know the the the, the usual uh, uh, cliche of like with a lot of um, power comes a lot of responsibility, and I think that's the case here with things like AI, given the, the enormous opportunity in front of us. And I think we need a lot of voices. Uh, and as many inputs into things like the design of the systems and the values um, they should have and what goals should they be put to, um, I think as wide a group of voices as possible beyond just the technologists is needed uh, to input into that and to have a say in that, especially when it comes to deployment of these systems, which is when the rubber really hits the road. It really affects the general person in the street rather than fundamental research. And that's why I say I think as a first step, it would be better if we have the choice to build these systems as tools to give, and I'm not saying that it should never, they should never go beyond tools because of course the potential is there um, for it to go way beyond just tools. Uh, But um, I think that would be a good first step uh, in order for us to, you know, allow us to carefully experiment, and understand what these things can do.
0: So the leap between tool to sentient entity being is one we should take very carefully. Yes. Let me ask a dark personal question. So you're one of the most brilliant people in the AI community, You're also one of the most kind and uh, if I may say sort of loved people in the community. That said, uh, creation of a super intelligent AI system would be one of the most powerful things in the world, tools or otherwise. And uh, again, as the old saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, You are likely to be one of the people, I would say probably the most likely person to be in the control of such a system. Do you think about the corrupting nature of power when you talk about these kinds of systems that um, as all dictators, And people have caused atrocities in the past, always think they're doing good, Mm -hmm. but they don't do good because the powers polluted their mind about what is good and what is evil. Do you think about this stuff or are we just focused on language model? No, (laughs) I
1: think about them all the time. And, and, you know, I think what are the defenses against that? I think one thing is to remain very grounded and sort of humble, uh, no matter what you do or achieve. And I try to do that. I, my, you know, my best friends are still my set of friends from my undergraduate Cambridge days. My family's, you know, it's, and 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 friends are very important. Um, I've always, I think, trying to be a multidisciplinary person. It helps to keep you humble because no matter how good you are at one topic, someone will be better than you at that. And it, and always relearning a new topic again from scratch is or a new field is very humbling. Right. So for me that's been biology over the last five years. You know, huge area topic and, and and it's been and I just love doing that, but it helps to keep you grounded, like and keeps you open minded. Um and uh and then the other important thing is to have a really group amazing set of uh people around you at your company or your organization who are also very ethical and grounded themselves and, and help to keep you that way. Uh and then ultimately, just to answer your question, I hope we're gonna be a big part of of birthing AI and that being the greatest benefit to humanity of any tool or, or technology ever and and getting us into a world of radical abundance and curing diseases and 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 solving many of the big challenges we have in front of us, and then ultimately you know help the ultimate flourishing of humanity to travel the stars and find those aliens if they are there, and if they 're not there, find out why they 're not there what what is going on here in the universe um This is all to come and 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 that 's what i 've always dreamed about um. But I don't think I think AI is too big an idea. It's not going to be. Uh, there'll be a certain set of pioneers who get there first. I hope to, we're in the vanguard so we can influence how that goes. And I think it matters who builds, who which which cultures they come from, and what values they have. Uh, the builders of AI systems, because I think even though the AI system is going to learn for itself most of its knowledge, there'll be a residue in the system of the culture and the values of the creators of that system. Um, and there's interesting questions to, to discuss about that geopolitically, you know, different cultures as we're in a more fragmented world than ever, unfortunately. I think in terms of global cooperation, uh, we see that in things like climate where we can't seem to get our act together uh, globally to cooperate on these pressing matters. I hope that will change over time. Perhaps, you know, if we get to an era of radical abundance, we don't have to be so competitive anymore. Maybe we can be more co- cooperative uh, if resources aren't so scarce.
0: It's true that in terms of uh, power corrupting yep. and leading to destructive things, it seems that some of the atrocities of the past happen when there's a significant uh, constraint on resources.
1: I think that's the first thing. I don't think that's enough. I think scarcity is one thing that's led to competition, destruct, you know, sort of zero sum game thinking. I would like us to all be in a positive sum world, and I think for that you have to remove scarcity. I don't think that's enough, unfortunately, to get yes. world peace because there's also other corrupting things like wanting power over people and this kind of stuff which is not necessarily satisfied by by just abundance but i think it will help um and i think uh but i think ultimately ai is not going to be run by any one person or one organization i think it should belong to the world belong to humanity um and i think maybe many there'll be many ways this will happen and ultimately um everybody should have a say in that do you have advice
0: for uh young people in high school and college maybe um if they're interested in AI or interested in having a a big impact on the world, what they should do to have a career they can be proud of or to have a life
1: they can be proud of. I love giving talks to the next generation. What I say to them is actually two things. Uh, I think the most important things to learn about uh, and, and to find out about when you're, when you're young is what are your true passions is first of all, there's two things. One is find your true passions. And I think you can do that by the way to do that is to explore as many things as possible. When you're young and you, you have the time and you, and you, you can take those risks. Um, I would also encourage people to look at the, finding the connections between things uh, in a unique way. I think that's a really great way to find a passion. Second thing I would say advise is know yourself. So spend a lot of time understanding how you work. Best, like what are the optimal times to work? What are the optimal ways that you study? Um, What are your how do you deal with pressure? Um, Sort of test yourself in various scenarios and um, try and improve your weaknesses, um, but also find out what your unique skills and strengths are and then hone those. So then that's what will be your super value in the world later on. And if you can then combine those two things and find passions that you're genuinely uh, excited about that intersect with what your unique strong skills are, then you're, you know, you're onto something incredible. And, and, you know, I think you can make a, a huge difference in the world.
0: So let me ask about know yourself. This is fun. This is fun. Quick questions about day in the life. The perfect day, the perfect productive day in the life of Demesis house. Yeah. Maybe uh maybe these days you're um there's a lot involved. Yes. So maybe a slightly younger Demesis house Yeah, when you could focus on a single project, maybe. Um how early do you wake up? Are you night owl? Do you wake up early in the morning? What are some interesting habits? Uh how many dozens of cups of coffees do you drink <laughs> a day? What's the computer um that you use? Uh, what's the setup? How many screens? What kind of keyboard? Are we talking uh, Emacs Vim? Or are we talking something more modern? So it's a bunch of those
1: questions. So maybe a uh, day in the life. Yes. What, what's the perfect day involved? Well, these days, it's, it's quite different from, say, 10, 20 years ago. Back 10, 20 years ago, it would have been you know a whole day of... Um, uh, research individual research or programming, doing some experiment, neuroscience computer science experiment, reading lots of research papers uh and then perhaps at night time, you know um reading science fiction books or or uh playing uh some games but right.
0: lots of focus so like deep focused work on whether it's
1: uh programming or reading research papers yes. Yes. So that would be lots of debrief, you know, uh, focus work these days for the last sort of, I guess, you know, five to 10 years, I've actually got quite a structure that works very well for me now, which is that um, I'm a night, complete night owl, always Mm -hmm. have been. So I optimize for that. So, you know, I get, uh, you know, I'll basically do a normal day's work, get into work about 11 o'clock and sort of do work to about seven uh, in the office. Uh, And I will arrange back to back meetings for the entire time. Of that, and with as many meet as many people as possible. So that's my collaboration management part of the day. Mm-hmm. Then I go home, uh, spend time with the family and friends, uh, have dinner, uh, uh, relax a little bit, and then I start a second day of work. I call it my second day of work around 10 p.m., 11 p.m. And that's the time till about the small hours of the morning, four or five in the morning, where I will do my thinking and uh, reading research, writing research papers. Um, sadly, I don't have time to code anymore, but it's it's not efficient to to do that uh, uh, these days, uh, given the amount of time I, I have. Um, but that's when I do, I, you know, maybe do the long kind of stretches of, of thinking and planning. And then probably, you know, using, using email, or other things, I would set, I would fire off a lot of things to my team to, to deal with. The next morning, for actually thinking about this overnight, we should go for this project or arrange this meeting the next day.
0: When you're thinking through a problem, are you talking about a sheet of paper with a pen? pen? Is there some? It structured, yeah. I, uh, I process? like.
1: I still like pencil and paper best for working out things. But um, these days, it's just so efficient to read research papers just on the screen. I still often print them out. Actually, I still prefer to uh, mark out things, and it, I find it goes into the brain quick, um, better, and sticks in the brain better when you're 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 still using physical pen. And pencil and paper.
0: So you take notes. with The I
1: have lots of notes, electronic ones, and also um, whole stacks of notebooks that 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 um that I use at home. Yeah,
0: on some of these most challenging next steps, for example, stuff n- n- none of us know about that you're working on. You're thinking there's some deep thinking required there, right? Like what what is the right problem? What is the right approach? Because you're gonna have to invest a huge amount of time for the whole team. They're going to have to pursue this thing. What's the right way to do it? Is is RL gonna work here or not? Yes. Um what's the right thing to try? What's the right benchmark to use? Yeah. Do we need to construct a benchmark from scratch? All those kinds of things. Yes.
1: So I think of all those kind of things in the nighttime phase, but also much more um I find I've always found the quiet hours of the morning um when everyone's asleep. It's super quiet outside. Um, I love that time. It's the golden hours, like between like one and three in the morning, Um, put some music on, some inspiring music on, and then um, think these deep thoughts. So that's when I would read, you know, my philosophy books and uh, Spinoza's, my you know, recent favorite, Kant, all these things, I, I, and I you know read about a great uh, 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 a scientist of history, how they did things, how they thought things. So it, that's when you do all your create. That's when I do all my creative thinking, and it's good. I, I think I think people recommend you know you do your 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 sort of creative thinking in one block, and I, the way I organise the day that way I don't get interrupted because obviously no one else is up uh, at those times. So I can I can go uh, you know it's as, as I can sort of get super deep and super into flow the other nice thing about doing it nighttime wise is if i'm really uh onto something or i've uh, i've got really deep into something i can choose to extend it and i'll go into six in the morning whatever and then i'll just pay for it the next day yeah because i'll be a bit tired and i won't be my best but that's fine i can decide looking at my schedule the next day that and given where i'm at with this particular thought or creative idea that I'm gonna pay that cost the next day. So so I think that's that's more flexible than morning people who do that, you know, they get up at four in the morning. They can also do those golden hours then. But then their start of their scheduled day starts at breakfast, you know, eight A. M., whatever, they have their first meeting. And then it's hard you have to reschedule a day if you're in flow. Yeah, they could so be a I true don't have to do that.
0: Special thread of thoughts that the, the, the you're too passionate about. This is where some of the greatest ideas could potentially come is when you just lose yourself late into yeah. the night. And for the meetings, I mean, you're loading in really hard problems in a very short amount of time. Mm. So you have to do some kind of first principles thinking here. It's like, what's the problem? What's the state of things? What's the right next step? Yes, you have uh-huh. to get
1: really good at context switching, which is yeah. one of the hardest things. Because especially as we do so many things, if you include all the scientific things we do, scientific fields we're working in, these are entire fe- you know complex fields in themselves, and you 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 have to sort of keep up to up abreast of that. But I enjoy it. I've always been. Uh, A sort of generalist in a way, and that's actually what happened with my games career after chess. I, 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 one of the reasons I stopped playing chess was because I got into computers, but also I started realizing there were many other great games out there to play too. So I've always been that way inclined, multidisciplinary. And there's too many interesting things in in the world to spend all your time just on one thing.
0: So you mentioned Spinoza. Got to ask the big, ridiculously big question about life. What do you think is the meaning of this whole thing? Uh, Why are we humans here you've already mentioned that perhaps the universe created us mm-hmm. is that why you think we're here <laughs> to, to understand how the universe yeah works?
1: i think my answer to that would be and at least the, the the life i'm living is to gain and uh to gain and understand the, the knowledge you know to gain knowledge and understand the universe that's what i think uh i can't see any higher purpose than that if you think back to the classical greeks you know the virtue of gaining knowledge It's. uh, I think it's. It's one of the few true virtues is to understand um, the world around us and the context and humanity better. And um, and I think if you do that, you become more compassionate and more understanding yourself and and more tolerant and all these. I think all these other things may flow from that. And to me, you know, understanding the nature of reality that is the biggest question. What is going on here is sometimes the colloquial way I say. What is really going on here? Uh, It's so mysterious. I feel like we're in some huge puzzle and and it's but the world is also seems to be the universe seems to be structured in a way you know why is it structured in a way that science is even possible that you know methods the scientific method works things are repeatable Mm -hmm. um it feels like it's almost structured in a way to be conducive to gaining knowledge so i feel like and you know why should computers be even possible isn't that amazing that uh Computational or electronic devices can 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 be possible, and they're made of sand, our most you know common element that we have, you know, silicon that we, on the on the Earth's crust. It could have been made of diamond or something. Yeah. Then we would have only had one computer, yeah. right? So it's a lot of things are kind of slightly suspicious to it, me. It sure as heck sounds <laughs> this puzzle. Sure as heck
0: sounds like something we talked about earlier. What it takes to to design a game that's really fun to play for prolonged periods of time. And it does seem like this puzzle, like you mentioned, the more you learn about it, the more you realize how little you know, so it humbles you but excites you by the possibility of learning more. It's yeah. one heck of a one heck of a puzzle we got going on here um so like I mentioned, of all the people in the world, you're very likely to be the one who creates the a g i system um that achieves human level intelligence and goes beyond it. so if you got a chance. And very well, you could be the person that goes into the room with the system and have a conversation. Uh, Maybe you only get to ask one question. If you do, uh, what question would you ask her?
1: I would probably ask, um, what is the true nature of reality? I think that's the question. I don't know if I'd understand the answer, because maybe it would be 42 or something like Mm -hmm. that. But um, that's the question I would ask.
0: And then there'll be a deep sigh from the systems, like, "All right, how do I explain <laughs> I to this exactly human? What, exactly. All right, let me. <laughs> I don't have time yeah. <laughs> to explain. Uh, maybe I'll draw you a picture. That it is. I mean, how do you even begin um, to answer that
1: question? Well, I think it would. Um, what would you? What would you think the
0: answer could possibly
1: look like? I think it could. It could start looking like uh uh more fundamental explanations of physics would be the beginning, you know more careful specification of that taking walking us through by the hand as to what one would do to maybe, maybe prove those things out,
0: maybe giving you glimpses of what things you totally miss in the physics of today exactly. exactly just here here's glimpses of no like there's a much um a much more elaborate world or a much simpler world or something yes um
1: A much deeper, maybe simpler explanation of things, right, than the standard model of physics, which we know doesn't work, but we still keep adding to. So, um, and and that's how I think the beginning of an explanation would look. And it would start encompassing many of the mysteries that we have wondered about for thousands of years, like, you know, consciousness, dreaming, uh, life, and gravity, all of these things. Yeah,
0: giving us glimpses of explanations for those things. Yeah, Yeah. Well, Damas, you're one of the special human beings in this giant puzzle of ours. And it's a huge honor that you would take a pause from the bigger puzzle to solve this small puzzle of a conversation with me today. It's truly an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. I
1: really enjoyed it. Thanks, Lex.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation with Demis Asabas. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with some words from Edsker Dykstra. Computer science is no more about computers than astronomy is about telescopes.